Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste explode. There's a lot of explosions this week. Oh, my goodness, yes, we have some catching up to do. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic for The Wrap. I also write for Slash Film, and everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. I write for Slash Film. I don't have a clever nickname. Uh, you can insult me right to my face. Please do. And uh, this week on Critically Acclaimed... <laughs> you don't need to encourage them. Eh. Anyway, uh, on this week on Critically Acclaimed, we got a bunch of movies to review. A couple from last week, a couple from this week. Here's the list. Mm. The remake of The Little Mermaid. Fast X, a.k.a. Fast 10. I'm not sure I'm supposed to be pronouncing that one. It's definitely Fast X. Okay. Uh, White Men Can't Jump, the new one. Another uh, remake. Yeah. Uh, the Robert De Niro comedy about my father. Uh, two Shutter horror exclusives. Huesera, The Bone Woman, and Influencer. Uh, we've got a sequel to Becky, appropriately titled The Wrath of Becky. A new film from Nicole Haloff Center called You Hurt My Feelings. And a new film from Michael J. Fox called Still... A Michael J. Fox movie. That's right, a documentary. It's kind of an autobiographical documentary about Michael J. Fox. That is, that is a lot. That's a lot to get through. Oh, uh, not a lot to say about some of these, though. Uh, we can kind of... <laughs> Gotta I gotta speed, skip past the Little Mermaid. No, one's, uh, no, it's of no interest. No, it's actually a lot going on. Uh, mm-hmm. The Little Mermaid. Let's start there. It's the big opening right. film this week. I guess this week. Um, yeah, L- Little Mermaid. This is the latest in that uh, battery of making live-action CGI hybrids of uh, their animated fair. Mm-hmm. The, that is Disney's animated fair. So this is not a retelling of the Hans Christian Andersen classic. No. It's a straight-up remake of the 1989 anim- animated picture they're not going back to the uh, original source material so much as they are taking the original animated classic the little mermaid which was i believe less than 90 minutes long mm-hmm. and padding it out because yeah. now it's like two hours long uh, uh yeah the original story mm. of the little mermaid the, ri- the original original the, the hans christian anderson story mm. it's far more tragic oh yeah uh, a lot of the beats are the same Carried over into that 1989 film. Mm. Um, the basic gist uh, of it. A, a mermaid lives off the coast and uh, falls in love with a human man. Yeah. Uh, she makes a deal with a sea witch uh, to become human, briefly. Mm. Uh, she wants to become human because in the original version of things, mermaids don't have souls. They don't go. Oh. To, they don't go to heaven when they die. They turn into sea foam. Oh my goodness! So the I, foam you I, see. I knew watch, they. Tu- yeah. I knew they turned into sea foam. I didn't realize it was because they had no souls. Yeah. Uh, wow. It, okay. It, when you see foam washing up on the shore, those are dead mermaids. No, no, I got that part. I mean, that's yeah, that's um, all. That's just science. I just thought <laughs> I didn't realize that they had no souls. That's yeah. so. That's so, so sad. Uh, so yeah, she makes a deal with a sea witch to uh, uh, become a human briefly. Yeah. Uh, she has to marry this man within mm-hmm. a, a certain amount of time. I think it's three days. In the movie, mm-hmm. it's, she has to kiss him within three days. But, yeah, in, yeah. In, in the original story, she has to marry him. Okay. Uh, but the price she has to pay is her voice. Mm. So she can't speak to this guy. Yeah. She has to marry him without speaking to him. Which makes, uh, it, makes it a teensy bit more complicated mm-hmm. in theory. Uh, and she fails because he falls in love with another woman. Awkward. So uh, she can't speak. She's going to turn into sea foam. Her sisters say, hey, we went to the Sea Witch too. We understand you're human now, and you're going to die when the sun comes up. But we cut off all her hair, her beautiful mermaid hair, and we gave that to the Sea Witch. Uh, But the problem is the Sea Witch had sold her watch (laughs) to get these beautiful beautiful combs for all these mermaids. No, uh, they they gave the Sea Witch uh, their hair, and the Sea Witch gave them a dagger. And she said, 
you can become a mermaid again. You just have to kill your beloved. You have to stab him, and the blood has to squirt onto your legs, and you'll turn back into a fish person. Awkward. And uh, she's about to do it, but then she thinks better of it. She can't stab her mm. beloved, and she turns this, turns into sea foam. And her, so her sisters so did all that for nothing. Stop knocking the table. Oh, sorry about that. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's the original story. And I've okay. seen uh, multiple film adaptations of this. Sure. Uh, prior to the 1989 film, actually, mm. a, a, a relative of mine was very fond of mermaids, just in general. So I saw an anime version of The Little Mermaid, and uh, you know, cheap TV versions of Little Mermaid. Yeah. They, they came along pretty frequently. Well, mermaids are big uh, business. The mm. uh, Tom Hanks, Daryl Hannah comedy Splash. Yeah, that was, uh, is, that was a big it, hit. Yeah. It's basically a Little Mermaid I, uh, riff. It's a bit more mm. cheerful. Uh, and it was such a huge hit for Disney, although they released it through, like, Buena Vista or Touchstone or something, mm-hmm. uh, that the ride Splash Mountain at Disneyland is actually named after the movie Splash. I don't believe that. That is 100%. Seconds. You can look that up. That is 100% true. I, I think you're, you're believing that is some sort of apocryphal nonsense. I but, uh, def- that, that is 100% true. <laughs> you can look it up if you like. Please do. Um, uh, so, yeah, I... Then uh, Disney made The Little Mermaid. Very famously, it sort of launched this new wave of hits in their canon. It, it, it gets uh, a little more credit, I think, than it should because it was actually the success of Oliver and Company just before The Little Mermaid mm. that basically gave Little Mermaid that boost yeah. in respectability to begin with. It's one yeah, of those, D- like... Disney was doing very badly throughout the 70s yeah. and 80s. They were going to shutter the animation department. Altogether, it came this close. Uh, there there was, was a really you know. interesting period when they were trying new stuff and they made movies like There's Something, Wic- uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes mm-hmm. and Watcher in the Woods. Like well, they, were, they were really trying, they were trying to stretch to, a little bit. I mean, even The Black Hole is a horror movie yeah, as well. Yeah. That was like a big, epic, gigantic sci-fi horror movie. Yeah, but that's those, a cool film. But those films way. also didn't do well. No, so, they, didn't, yeah. they didn't know what they were doing. It wasn't until... Until uh, they made the again, Oliver and Company did well, but The Little Mermaid was a gigantic monster hit. Mm-hmm. It won an Academy Award, uh, and it was a gorgeous work of animation. It was mm-hmm. really well told. Uh, the songs were all bangers. Just really, really great music from uh, beginning to end. A couple of them were nominated for Academy Awards. Yep. One of them won. Uh, uh, Under the Sea won. Yeah. Kiss the Girl was also nominated. I. St- it still surprises me that Under the Sea is the one that won. I don't know and, why. And not, and, and not Kiss the Girls, for example. Or Part of Your oh. World, even, for being nominated. Like, it's just... I don't uh, know. Under the Sea is a nice song. It just seems to be, like, the one... Part of Your World, they almost cut, just because yeah. when they showed it to kids, it's like sort of like a slower song early in the movie, and I think the but kids it, were getting a little restless, so, so is, we gotta cut that song. But you need but, that song. It establishes yeah. so much. It anyway, establishes her longing. Anyway, the original movie is great. And mm. it really... The massive success of that launched Disney into the 90s on great footing, and even though not every single thing they did in the 90s was a monster hit, Rescuers Down Under was part of that renaissance. Mm -hmm. It's like the only major renaissance film that wasn't a huge success. Um, These were all gigantic movies, so it's kind of weird that it took them so long to get around to The Little Mermaid, but they finally did. You can see why, because it takes place under the water, and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as as we've learned for, yeah, like, Avatar, it's complicated to shoot underwater scenes. Uh, So... Uh, I think Aquaman kind of pushed the door open a little bit, and then, of course, James Cameron just yeah. opened the floodgates. Well, by that uh, point, but, the movie, Little Mermaid was already in the can, you know. But, yeah, I suppose you know. so. Although, uh, I, although yeah, he'd been working on it for so long, I suppose they might have had some technology yeah, they, uh, bleed through. Who can say? The, so, the story of the animated film, which is the, sa- the same story as this uh, uh, remake. And, yeah, uh, and basically so, nuts and bolts, yeah. Young Mermaid, Teenage Mermaid. Mm-hmm. 
falls in love with human man from afar, rescues him from drowning. Yeah. Uh, and he becomes obsessed with finding uh, this this woman, this mysterious woman, because he, he doesn't know she's a mermaid. Well, he didn't get a, and he uh, didn't get a good look at her. All he really knows is her voice, her voice which is ironically yeah. what she yeah, had, uh, gets taken away from her by Ursula. She's, she's not just obsessed with this guy. She's obsessed with everything human. She's obsessed oh. with the human world. She pilfers sunken ships and goes to the surface a lot, which is forbidden by her father, who is... Mm-hmm. They don't call him Poseidon, they call him a Triton, which is a different Greek god. Which is the name uh, of the character in the original animated movie as well. Yeah, uh, uh, He's played by uh, Javier Bardem. Javier Bardem. Uh, and, yeah, in this remake, uh, Halle Bailey, uh, an actress I don't know until this. Yeah, um, she did a lot of TV, but I wasn't. Uh, I haven't really seen her in anything uh, as a movie. Heck guy. of a singing voice. Amazing yeah, she singing sing, She voice. sings her own songs. She does a wonderful job. I think she's fantastic uh, in this movie. We got Melissa McCarthy as Ursula, doing quite a good job, I feel. Uh, uh, not at all. Uh, I think she's <laughs> fine. And then uh, we got Jonah Howard King as Prince Eric, mm. uh, who, in the great tradition of uh, Disney animated princes in the original version, just kind of a handsome guy. Yeah. yeah. Not, not really a very interesting person. Uh, here he gets a musical number to try to establish him as sort of Ariel's counterpart. He dreams of the sea. She dreams of land. Will they ever meet? It's a good yeah. idea to if you're going to add things to give the prince more character and well, a song. And, and, it's a and good idea. we also meet the the queen. He's a prince, so there's yeah. got to be a king or a queen out there. So we meet the queen of Visifland. It, it's, it's in the Caribbean uh, that we know mm. that. It's in the Caribbean, uh, and they bend over backwards to make the plot okay with him being white. Because he's like, they, they add this whole thing about, you were a foundling. We found you in a shipwreck. And I, as soon as they said that, took, I was you like. you in as the prince. Yeah. Like, as soon so as this, we this just. Caribbean uh, queen who, who is a black woman. Ev- uh, yes. Every single person who washes ashore on this island is immediately taken to the castle and adopted. This happens to the Little Mermaid when she gets her legs. Yeah. It happens to him too. It, it, it's, it's the style at the time. Uh, I thought when they said, hmm. oh, we found you in a shipwreck. Mm. that they were going to add some kind of twist ending where, oh yeah, he was a mermaid too. The, and then that this would film be a, isn't nearly that interesting. No, I thought, uh, this, I this thought is there was just doing, interesting doing with pretty it. much no, the same no, thing beat for no, beat. No, it's just the same vibe. Uh, it's the same song. It's just, it's just is, an excuse to explain why he looks like the cartoon. Yeah, My, my issue yeah. with a lot of these uh, remakes is they're they're not really exploring the material. They're just doing it again. Basically. Uh, they're not expanding. Uh, it, it really chafed me a little bit when they did Beauty and the Beast, which is a terrible film. The live well, action. The live action Beauty yeah, and the Beast. Yeah. Uh, and they just did the same songs again. Yeah. It's like, well, I mean, you're doing this again. Why are you just doing the same? Write some new songs. Well, I mean, Stage it a little bit differently. Were you, were you, Do, tell you, a different story, kind were of. Were you mad when Steven Spielberg used the same songs in his West Side Story? No. That you could make the same argument. This is I, a I new revival so. of, of yeah. it, if you will. Well, and, that, and that's what these things feel like. Uh, yeah. This one, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin especially, because they're using the same, and The Lion King, because yeah. they're using the same music. Yeah. They feel like Broadway revivals, but yeah. not Broadway revivals. They feel like the matinee versions. I, I, There's I, like an, almost like a Disney on Ice vibe yeah. I'm getting from these when, things. When you look at um, the song in, I think in particular the song in Aladdin, hmm. where Will Smith... Uh, introduces Aladdin as Prince Ali. Okay. Uh, in the original version, that was big and epic, and it was mm. it was a big procession, but in the live-action version, it feels like 
uh, it is the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and there is a uh, Aladdin-themed float, and we're going to yeah. stop and do the whole song while the cameras are on us. Yeah. And yeah. it's very good for that, <laughs> but it doesn't really feel like a real film. It doesn't film. feel like feels, cinema at it all. It feels like uh, we're just kind of copying it in kind of yeah, a fun well, way. And uh, in... The Little Mermaid, there's, you know, they, they sing Under the Sea. Yeah. Oscar winning song. Yeah, it's a fun song. Uh, the lyrics are all about how fish can play instruments. Yeah. It's they, about, there, there's all these, all of the lyrics yeah. are very explicitly, uh, there's even a, a joke about Duke Ellington in the middle. Of, um, yeah. Uh, what is it? The fluke is the Duke of Soul. And there's yeah. a, a fluke, a fish, that looks like Duke Ellington that's playing a saxophone yeah. in the animated version. But they, they took uh, out the instruments in the live action version. They took out all the instruments. Yeah. None of the fish are anthropomorphized in this one, except no. for one. Uh, which is just named Flounder, and it's not a flounder, and it's not really, um, anthrop- and it's only anthropomorphized in uh, in it, its personality. It doesn't yeah, it like speaks, look more. Yeah, and, and there's they didn't and, they didn't adjust its design to yeah. make it more expressive. Or uh, they Sebastian the crab in the original, I always thought it was a lobster. I thought it looked more lobster like in the, the cartoon he, version. He was always, he was little little crab. Uh, they made him look a little bit more like a Lovecraftian horror in this one. His with eyes like, freaked little, me the fuck out. Little bug eyes and little yeah. kind of weird pleated I, mouth. I think really David, weird David Diggs plays the role, and that is mm. a that is an iconic animated role. Mm. That is a difficult role to sort of come into and like make your own. And I think mm. David Diggs does as well as anyone could be expected well, to do. Da- David Diggs, you, yeah. you can tell, is doing something. He's and he, so talented. He and yeah. Aquafina, who plays uh, Scuttle. Scuttle the Bird, yeah. uh, have a rap which is one of the new songs mm-hmm. and the song isn't great, but it's Lin-Manuel Miranda doing his thing. And I like that. Uh, and I like Davi Diggs and I like Aquafina's mm. flow. The, so the, it's, it's kind of fun to listen to, even though it's like kind of kitty. It's, it's very kitty. Yeah. And, and this is the thing I think is interesting about because um, they got Lin-Manuel Miranda to introduce a couple of new songs in mm-hmm. this movie. Fine. Uh, however, Lin-Manuel Miranda's, musical style is not the same as the original Little Mermaid. It's Alan um, Menken. It's, yeah. And what they, I thought was a, a weird, but kind of makes sense choice. They also had Lin-Manuel Miranda add new verses to pre-existing songs mm-hmm. so that when the new songs come along and that song Scuttlebutt that you're talking about, the mm-hmm. duet between the crab and the, and the bird, uh, and that's just a rap. Mm-hmm. It feels less jarring because now there's a verse in Under the Sea, which is more of a rap. Mm. And so I thought that was, they did a pretty good job of Mm. sort of preparing us for that and trying to incorporate the new element with the old element when it came with the music. Mm. When it comes with the story, on the other hand, I think it's a real mixed bag in terms of what they add and change. I think goosing some of the characters up, great idea. You have more time, do it, please. That's what the time is there for. Uh, they add a new backstory to Ursula where she's uh, Triton's sister and she was like banished for being evil. Mm. We did not need that, but no, it also doesn't hurt anything. So I, actually, I guess it's fine. I, I went back and watched a portion of the 1989 film yeah. to see what the Sea Witch's uh, relationship was to the other fish, fish folk. Yeah. And uh, she said, mentioned that she used to live in the palace and they had big parties. Mm-hmm. And she was kicked out for some reason. And that's all the backstory we're given. Yeah. That's all we need, really. We yeah. And we didn't even need that. We can just say she's a witch and she's evil. That's fine. Just, yeah. But, like, but again, you have more time. You mm. want to spend more time with her. I get it. Uh, Dante, cat. would you mind not knocking cat. things over, please? Cat's knocking things off the shelf please, there. Please, please stop knocking things over, yeah. Dante. Would you mind uh, uh, picking up whatever he... Uh, 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 Knocked off a shelf. Knock over, you little booger. Yeah. Anyway, um, 
so they added their stuff to Ursula. It's it's basically fine. Um, they added. Um, oh no, I lost my train of thought. Dante, you little goober. He's yeah. so uh, cute. Anyway, well, I I I was really frustrated though. Not just yeah. that thing about Under the Sea where they didn't animate the animals to match the lyrics of the song. Uh-huh. So it feels like just a, a kind of lazy restaging of it. Yeah. But they did that with uh, Ursula's song as well. She has a mm. song called Poor Unfortunate Soul. Oh, and it's one is, of the great Disney villain uh, songs. And, yeah. and there's all of this, like, sort of asides and explanation where she's singing partly to the audience and partly to yeah. uh, Ariel the Little Mermaid. Some of it Ariel yeah, isn't yeah. supposed to be able to hear. That's yeah. just and, for us. You and know? Melissa McCarthy sings it all at the same level. Yeah. She's singing all directly towards Ariel, even when she's, like, insulting Ariel. Right. So, clearly the, the makers of this film aren't giving any kind of verve or staging yeah. to these things. They're just doing it. And it becomes across as, like, really flat. I, I think we may have made uh, a bit of an error when we mm. exalted Rob Marshall to the idea that he is, <laughs> he is like, one of the great musical directors. Okay. His version what? of Chicago is very good. No, it isn't. No, 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 no. His no, no. version of Chicago sucks. I'm going no, to stop right there. I'm going to stop right there. His version of Chicago uh, is very good in certain regards. Okay, in what regards? I like the performances. I think the acting is good. I, I who's Queen Latifah? <laughs> Queen Latifah's good. Catherine Zeta-Jones. Catherine Zeta-Jones is good. Yeah, come John on. John C. Riley's fine. Yeah, exactly. See, some of these people are quite good. Renee Zellweger, like, the main I like, character. I like the production <laughs> design. I like the production design. Oh, you like the production design? Yeah. yeah. What little of it you can see? Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Here's the thing with Rob Marshall. He's Look, he is j- j- see like just any five yeah. minute clip of that '90s revival of Chicago on Broadway, yeah. the one with uh, BB yeah. Newworth. Oh, I know. It's amazing. Uh, and it, you'll understand just how fallow that film version you know of Chicago is. You know what? You're right. I have. Yeah. I, if there's one thing you can say about me is I have a history of being way too kind. So I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll let it go. I think there. Th- I don't think Chicago is a total wash. There are things I like about it, but it's not great. Mm-hmm. I think his Into the Woods is largely terrible. His Into the Woods is quite bad. I yeah. did, I did not see Memoirs of a Geisha. Memoirs of a Geisha uh, is very handsome as a production. The costumes are fantastic. That's what et I kept hearing, they're yeah. also they're also that's my understanding they're not super accurate but they do look yeah. really good uh, uh, it's a badly told story he did that yeah. musical version of Nine oh that I movie think, sucks which is such I hated that it's film. a weird idea and it's staged weirdly like yeah. I don't I, I can't really tell what direction he was going in with something like Nine I don't think he it had was, it, it was a sequel to is a musical sequel to Fellini's Eight and a Half it's not a sequel it's a remake practically well, like, the idea yeah. is it's supposed to be a remake and they, do, they take a lot of liberties hmm. um, and that's one where I'm, I'm not a big fan of Eight and a Half. We've talked about this a million times. I find mm-hmm. it, you know, Fellini is, is self-indulgent. That's his brand. But I think Eight and a Half pushes it so far, I just don't enjoy it. <laughs> Rob Marshall isn't self-indulgent. And unlike Fellini, he doesn't seem to make personal stories. He's not mm-hmm. adapting Nine to, to be, like, about him or anything like that. So the whole thing just comes across just really awkward and unnecessary. I'm not a huge fan of Rob Marshall's director. I think his uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movie is the most forgettable right, of all of them. he did one of them. He well, did the I, fourth one. Yeah, and that one had mermaids in it. It did have mermaids in it. So it was his second mermaid movie. I know, and that one's... And, and that's a... Wait a minute, weren't there I, mermaids in Nine as well? Weren't there like some oh, sea nymphs I, or something? I don't recall. I don't think so. Wasn't Fergie in uh, the sea nymphs Well, I mean, I think she was in it, but yeah. anyway, anyway, it's a whole thing. Anyway, um, I didn't see his Mary Poppins. 
I didn't, I didn't, see, I didn't, yeah. I didn't see his Mary Poppins out of respect for Mary Poppins because well, that, was, they, that movie wasn't supposed to be made. They they pushed it into production as soon as Travers died because she had it like in her <laughs> in her will basically that Disney would never be allowed to touch it, and then as soon as she was dead, they, they renegotiated they, they, they put that shit. Fingerprints all mm-hmm. over that. So thing. I just objected to it in principle, but I'm not a big Rob Marshall fan. There you mm. go. I, I I don't. I think there are worse directors out there. Mm. But I've never really seen anything he's done that that has really really wowed me. I will say this for the Little Mermaid. He didn't screw it up. It, like it's it, it's a it's a functional version of the Little yeah. Mermaid, and enough about it works that I think it's it's basically overall a bit of a win. I think uh, Halle Bailey carries the movie. She's so damn good in it. Well, you know, her physicality is great. Yeah, her performance is what, quite what strong. She's, uh, what she's able to give is, yeah. and you can tell that she's talented in mm. that she's actually not giving much of a performance here, and I think that's because it's not required of her. Well, she's not. She's, she's not overdoing anything. No, she yeah. she's you know asked to put on you know, some expressions of wonderment at all of this mm-hmm. like fakery because uh, she's filming against green screen. Yeah, very difficult to do. Uh, and, very difficult to do that believably. She does yeah. a good job. Uh, she she nails the songs. She's a real, oh, really God. great singer, incredible singer. Yeah, uh, but you can tell that she's capable of like emoting a lot more, and mm-hmm. she's just not asked to do that. You can tell yeah. that she's kind of holding herself back. Yeah, I think that's not a an interesting performance, but mm-hmm. she's matching the material. Well, I think, the, and, the, I and think, that makes her a good actress. And I so. think a, a part of my problem though with the, with the material this is the thing that I think is not as strong as uh, the original is. The original, one of the critiques of the original was that uh, Ariel was one of those uh, Disney heroes who, if you look at it a certain Do, way... Doesn't you have a lot of agency. Well, doesn't yeah. have a lot of agency, and she's kind of just doing it in order to, like, get this guy she likes. Yeah. Uh, and in order, and I think in partly to sort of mitigate that in this remake, they've muted that so that she's far more interested in the surface world mm. as, as a whole than she is specifically interested in Eric. And in fact... Now, everyone keeps saying, oh, you're in love with Eric. She never actually says that. Everyone else is kind of projecting that on her more than she's actually doing it. Oh, come and on. She, she sings that she's she in love sings, with Eric. She does, she, I know something's starting right now, she says. She's in love with this guy. I think it's, mm. I think it's less so than before. And I think mm. my point is this. Um, it feels less about Ariel's journey in this one than it is about plot and it's ultimately i feel like a lot of the bigger like emotional beats at the end of the movie actually end up going to king triton yeah who's it becomes more about always sad as those little girls leaving that kind of thing there's one shot of king triton at the end of this movie where it's like they're in a boat and then all of a sudden they just turn around and king triton is there Mm -hmm. and it's very clearly javier bardem in a swimming pool (laughs) like it's clearly not in the ocean at all and and seriously i'm watching this in a big crowded theater and they did that Finding Neverland thing where they like it's like some critics, but the majority of the theater it's like little kids, it's like yeah, these kids, people fans brought their who are kids, clap when they hear the song. Exactly, yeah. the, the, the target audience, which is great. Honestly, mm. it's fine. I, I, it's not necessarily going to change my mind about the movie, but it's good for the, them. They're glad they had to see the movie. Well, it's not great for them. They had to watch The Little Mermaid. But <laughs> hey, my point is this: they appreciated the film, and they yeah. were clapping after certain songs. They really seemed to be into it. You could feel the energy. It was appreciated. These people were not. Rolling their eyes at the Little Mermaid, they came to see the Little Mermaid. They got the Little Mermaid, and they seemed largely satisfied by the Little Mermaid. And then, right at the end, even that crowd burst into laughter at that <laughs> one shot of Javier Bardem because it's just so 
it looks like, oh shit, we forgot a shot and mm. we had like to do it the week before the movie came out. <laughs> we just had yeah, to assemble it, it as best we could. Put that and it's hilarious. back on him. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it's pretty hilarious. Um, uh, no, I, 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 don't, I don't. I don't dislike this movie though. I think this is. Right. It's, it's nowhere near as good as the original animated film. That's for sure. Yeah. It's largely superfluous. It's just basically again the only way to look at this movie. It's in the and, in the context of the the original movie. Uh, it's, no, it's no, only, no. Well, it is, but I it, think it's, it can only be compared to the original. And that's I think that's true. true of a lot of these things. But I think there's 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 also a way to look at it, which as I mentioned before, and I alluded to it, is not so much a remake or a replacement as a revival. Yeah. Okay, now uh, we've got the Little Mermaid. It's everyone loves it. It's the thing we're all doing, and now we're just going to do this version for funsies, mm. and we're going to see like, oh, what would people do with the parts now? Well, basically the same thing. Mm. Uh, Holly Bailey kicks ass. Melissa McCarthy acquits herself fine, and um, and we're good. Mm. Oh, and uh, David Diggs obviously is great. David like, Diggs, yeah, and, and, he's and Aquafina who replaced Buddy Hackett from the that's, original. That's he, an he was, interesting shift, isn't he, it? He, he, Buddy Hackett was like their big star at the time. Yeah. Uh, this was prior to Aladdin, and I think Aladdin yeah. was the one that sort of started Made celebrity bo- boasting a, celebrity. Yeah. Like the, a lot of these Disney animated films did have notable celebrities playing the voices, but they weren't the selling mm. point. Yeah. They're little bonuses for the adults, like um, like when George Sanders was in the Jungle Book, that kind of stuff. Yeah, like that was like, a respectable actor. They, they weren't you know. selling the Jungle Book on George Sanders. Mm-hmm. Like, come see George Sanders. They didn't put his name they on the They got the right actor for the part. Yeah. they did, yeah. Uh, it wasn't until uh, Robin Williams played the genie in Aladdin that they started doing that. And uh, and then, of course, yeah. several years later, Shrek just sort of wrecked everything. And we've been in the, the post-Shrek world ever well, since. Disney was uh, doing it, too. I mean, they had, like, Mel Gibson and Pocahontas, mm. that kind of thing. James Woods was considered a big get for Hercules at the yeah. time. Uh, but they, keep, keep in mind that those were all... After Aladdin, no, I know, I know, I know. I'm saying, yeah. I think you, you, it, they didn't just skip from Aladdin to Shrek. No, it was, no, it was, no, it was building in, yeah. in popularity. Um, the idea of putting the voice actors' names on the poster, yeah, was, and casting non-voice voice actors actor, who are not yeah. known for their voices. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I I can't help but imagine the voice actors in like the mid '90s mm-hmm. who were losing work to these big name actors who probably mm-hmm. could have and losing done, prestige. Yeah. There's probably plenty of talented actors who could have done a really good Mel Gibson impersonation. <laughs> would have worked for a lot less and would have gotten better if, work. If he'd you just know. gotten someone better than Mel Gibson. That's what I would have done. But there, yeah. he's, not, he's not that good in that movie. Um, anyway, so yeah, The Little Mermaid. A bit of a mixed bag. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wasn't offended by it. The same way I was by yeah. something like Beauty and the Beast, which I sure. kind of hated. Yeah. Uh, well, that was just I, complete. That goes beyond unnecessary. Like all the changes they made to Beauty and the Beast made the movie actively worse. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this one it's like they're they're mostly lateral. Like a few things. Like I said, oh, this character maybe was a little stronger before. Or this didn't need to be that long, but basically it's the same story. Yeah. Uh, I was mad they cut out the chef song. They did cut Les out the Poisson. chef song, which yeah. uh, in the original was performed by René Bergenois. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there was a song wonder, about a chef vo- killing fish, and I think they just didn't want us to think about killing fish very much. And they, but they took all the personality away from the fish. They can kill yeah. those things. We don't care. <laughs> well, there's this one bit were, at the they beginning. They anthropomorphic fish with like big expressive there's, there's faces There's this one bit everywhere. at the beginning where, where Ariel is swimming along with flounders as tropical fish, not a flounder. Uh... And then Scuttle dives into the water and just eats one of the citizens of Atlantica. Uh-huh. And they're just like, oh. Is it called Atlantica? That's what it's called. Yeah, it's called oh Atlantica. Uh, and uh, and it's just, and Scuttle's just like, oh, yeah, sorry about that. I just 
ate one of your peers, but we're cool, right? Mm. And I'm like, I guess that is kind of the law of the aquatic jungle or whatever like that, but it's really sobering. I, I, I wish that the fish that, that it ate, that mm, Scuttle had ate. screamed in terror or something. Yeah, just like, yeah. oh, hey, Scuttle, what's going on? Oh, hey, good to see you. Oh, oh, that's pretty harsh. Yeah, I never liked him anyway. Like, make a joke <laughs> out of it. There's also the bit where Scuttle breathes underwater for several minutes. Yeah, the, the bird yeah. is underwater. Now, it, it's a kind of... It's a diving bird. Yeah, cormorant it's, of some the kind. The idea that, yeah. is that it's a diving bird and the bird can like hold its breath underwater, which I would be fine with if it wasn't also breathing. Speaking, yeah. Yeah, it's also... Lines, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm like... I don't know. It, it's one of those things where like, if this was anime... Like, in animation, if Flounders pokes his head over the water... And he talks. Yeah, we're okay I, with that. I, I yeah. mean, because there's Cause an extra distance. It's a cartoon. It's but a you drawing, made it yeah. a photorealistic thing, and now more rules apply in my subconscious. Well, I, and you I know, think, more, I can get more distracted by shit like that. And and that highlights an issue with uh, mm. sort of these adaptations. They're trying to make yeah. these things really uh, photorealistic. Mm-hmm. The special effects, the animals are talking animals look more like animals now. Why? That's not the point. Yeah, who gives a the shit? The point was they were cartoon animals that could talk and sing. So that they're more expressive would, if they're cartoons. If if we have these, uh, mm. going back to the under the sea number, if they had all of these fish with like big expressive eyes and you know cartoon yeah. faces, and they were playing saxophones, now it would just look really ridiculous, wouldn't it? Where did a fish get a saxophone? <laughs> Where would they live? <laughs> uh, so. They had to change it in a way that weakened the music and made the song and made the movie worse. Irony. <laughs> Just watch the animated film. Anyway, uh, we should move on. Uh, the big blockbuster from last week that we didn't get a chance to get to uh, is the uh, kind of the tenth, kind of the eleventh, kind of the twelfth film in the Fast and Furious series. Twelfth. Uh, it's the twelfth movie, twelfth mm. canonical movie in this series. Yeah. Um, there's there's the Fast and Furious one through ten. There's mm. the Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw, mm. and then of course there's Better, Better Luck, Luck Tomorrow, Tomorrow, the other Justin Lin movie with uh, Han in it. Yeah. And if you're unaware of, uh, of that, uh, there was an independent film Justin Lin directed at UCLA when he was mm. uh, going there. It came out in uh, 2002. Yeah, 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 and it's great. It's, it's a great it's movie. An excellent movie. It's a great movie, and it was about but am- ambitious uh, students in Orange County, mm-hmm. and uh, they were they're all like valedictorian A grade mm-hmm. students, but uh, they end up uh, getting cocky and selling drugs, and it all goes very very wrong. And, and nobody looks at them because their grades are good. Yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. it's all about that and, sort and of. And they're uh, yeah. Asian students in like mm-hmm. uh, white schools, so they're seen, you know they're perceived a certain way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. great movie. And they introduced the character of Han, and then when Justin Lin was brought in for uh, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, uh, he took a character that was written to be a very different type of person and said, hey, what if we just made that Han? So they got Sun Kang, and he had had to pitch him on it, and they were just like, yeah, sure. So, Better Luck Tomorrow, technically Universal doesn't consider it a Fast and Furious movie because they didn't release it. Mm. Canonically, it is a Fast and Furious movie. Canonically, it is. So, boom. So this this should be Fast 12, if we're being technical, but we're Um, not. Uh, so yeah, we're we're on to the twelfth movie in this series. Yeah. Um, starting uh, the first four are a little bit smaller scale. Mm-hmm. The fourth one, which is not very good, tries no, to sort of pitch it as a a, li- a little bit of a team movie where they're, mm. they're like a little bit more capable. They're doing well, a little bit more daring things. The, the first a one, more spy leaning. In the, fir- that fourth the first movie. one was basically a big rip off of Point Break, except yeah. instead of uh, skydiving surfers, they uh, were LA street racers. They're LA yeah. street racers, and they were like doing high-speed heists of big-rig trucks to steal DVD players. That's how yeah, long ago that was. were hot in 2001, yeah. Uh, 
Too Fast, Too Furious was another street racing thing. There's another street racing criminal. They had to. Well, Vin Diesel's not in it that in yeah. that one. Yeah. Uh, Tokyo Drift was oh, the one. Uh, that was, yeah. I, I learned recently that Vin Diesel is not his real name. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Uh, it's Scott Diesel. No, it's it's not no, Diesel. No, it's, that was a joke. It's Mark Sinclair. No. Vin Diesel's birth name is what Mark an Sinclair. Incredible. He said, "Call me Vin Diesel," and we all just ran. And we with just it. went with it. And you know what? With that voice, his name you, is, you accept it. His name is Mark Sinclair. Love him. I believe anyway. he has a a brother, maybe even a twin brother. Uh, and uh, no, I looked up like where did he come with Vin Diesel? If yeah. Your name is Mark Sinclair. Yeah. And uh, Vin, uh, his his mother's last name was Vincent, so he wanted to. Oh, of, I thought it was a car thing. Vin. <laughs> I named it after my Vin number. I, I, I thought it was like he was really into wine. Cause that's, oh, yeah. Van, It'd be Van, Van Diesel. Van Diesel. Um, yeah. and, Van Diesel. And he, you can tell by looking at him, of course he worked as a bouncer at yeah. one point. Because tough looking guy. Yeah, tough looking guy, yeah. Uh, and he was like really energetic. So all the other bouncers called him Diesel. Okay. It's like diesel fuel. That's so he awesome. just went by Vin Diesel. And yeah. that's his name now. And people forget the reason why we know who Vin Diesel is, is because he directed a film and Spielberg saw it and liked it and cast him in, in Saving Private Saving Ryan. Saving Private Ryan, yeah. Interesting career trajectory for Vin Diesel. Yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, and, he, and he's become the master of these movies. He oh, produced totally them after a while, but yeah. he only starred in those first couple. The first and he didn't appear in the fourth. He was had a cameo in the third. Yeah, the third one's basically the Karate Kid, but with cars. Really good movie. It's actually one of the better films in the series. Fast and Furious was uh, them trying to sort of get the gang back together, get Paul Walker, Vin Diesel, everybody, uh, and. Um, it's not very good, but it does what it needs to do because what it needs to do is get all the pieces in place so that we can get Fast Five. Hmm. And Fast Five, I maintain, is one of the best action movies. Uh, just period. Just, it, it's, it's really great. It takes that sort of high-octane street racing thing mm-hmm. and blends it almost in a way that you don't really notice into yeah. a spy thriller. Well, it's not so really the, so much uh, a spy thriller that one. It's more like an elaborate heist thing with yeah. like a crime element. It's the sixth one where they're recruited. Oh, that's true. By the yeah. by, by a secret organization. It's like, hey, listen, you are like super powered car guys. Well, turns out the main bad guys in Europe right now are also super powered car guys. Would you mind fighting them for us? And from that point on, it was James Bond with cars. Uh-huh. Uh, more cars, I suppose. Um, six also great. Just, it's stupid. It's even, like, Fast, Fast Five is pretty silly. Six is redonkulous. Yeah. It is very fun, though. And, and uh, since Five, though, they felt the need to sort of one-up themselves. Mm-hmm. And the films have gotten crazier as we've gone on. And Bigger so, car yeah. stunts, more ridiculous uh, uh, setups and plots, yeah. more melodrama, amnesia, think, people coming it, uh, back from the dead. Was it Fate of the Furious or F9 where he swings on the cable? F9. F9. Yeah, there's a scene yeah. where he... Drives a car off of a, a broken bridge. It's a wooden and bridge. A wooden bridge yeah. but that has like a steel cable that's attached yeah. to another bridge, like down yeah. the ravine. And it's, and it's attached and to like it, a plank of wood. Yeah, and and yeah. like somehow Vin Diesel knows how to catch that cable on the car he's driving, uh-huh. and it swings like Tarzan out over the ravine while a helicopter is chasing it, and it lands safely in another country out of the helicopter's jurisdiction and drives away. All <laughs> and drives away life. fine. Uh, Fate of the Furious was the one where they had zombie cars. Apparently, they're literally mm. like. Thousands of self-driving cars and, and, in and New York City right evil's now. Evil's computer hacker in a plane takes control of all of them, and the, I, it I, literally rains cars from the sky. I love 
that one so much. <laughs> Fate of the Furious. I actually, I think Fate of the Furious is fun. I got no objection to Fate of the Furious. Seven is the one that is so fucking weird, and it's it's not. I their love fault. Seven. That's one of my favorites. I, I wish I liked it more than I did. It's it's a very tricky thing. It was supposed to be this big uh, deal where mm. Jason Statham comes in as this unstoppable villain who's out for revenge because they like put his brother in a coma or something in, in Fast and Furious Six, and everyone's looking forward to it. Oh my god! And then midway through production, Paul Walker tragically died. Yeah, uh, like really sad. Died in a car crash. Yeah, just yeah. absolute t- desperate tragedy. By all accounts, I've never heard anyone say like a bad word about Paul Walker. Yeah. He was a really well, nice guy. Not not big uh, part of those movies. He, and... he was not the greatest actor, and I think you would agree with that. Um, yeah, but he was charming. Well, he, he had he had movie star quality. He like he really had that dazzle about yeah. him, and not, and not just because he was unbelievably handsome. Like no, he just, just had good presence. Just just a very good, likable everyman hero kind yeah, of so, quality. And so, so when they he had passed figure, away, they had to they had to figure out how to make that movie because well, they did they, not plan for that at all. There were they were able to film a few scenes that they were going to do with Paul Walker with his brother, who looks a lot mm. like him. Yeah. Filmed in shadow, you know, in a tasteful. Yeah, sort just of way. just to um, get the rollout. Yeah, and and then there was they, they were able to like incorporate a, a little older footage. Yeah. from like of him like in cars mm. from other movies. Yeah, and yeah. then and then there was sort of like a, a farewell scene, like a funeral scene, which was f- for Paul Walker more than it was for his character. That's the thing that's weird for me about that. Why movie. is that weird for you? Do you not the, like Paul Walker? I love Paul Walker, then, but it's weird from the movie's perspective. It's weird from a, the a moment where the audience gets to say goodbye. Because from the movie's perspective, it's uh, it's it's played strange. This uh, movie begins with a funeral for Han that is over in a minute. And then at the end of the movie, again, just look at it from the movie's perspective. All right. Okay? From the characters within the film. Okay? Hmm. Paul Walker's character doesn't die in that movie. He retires to go raise his kids. Yeah. And they treat that like it's infinitely sadder than the death of Han. And it just plays a little weird. I don't think I'm not, it plays I'm not weird at all because the audience knows knows what happened. The to Paul audience Walker. knows what happens mm. now in 50 years when that wound is not fresh anymore. People are going to look at it and be kind of like a little. They're going to realize that the movie is a little strange. Is it bad? No, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying that is an interesting choice that they made hmm. to take the actual interior negative uh, 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 interior narrative. Mm. Of the movie and blend it with the exterior narrative of the film in a way that makes perfect sense to the audience, to the people who really care about what happened over the course of making the movie, but within the internal narrative logic of the series doesn't actually make sense. And that's a choice that they made. I'm not saying mm. it's a bad choice, but it is a choice and it's an interesting choice. And then you had that song that they did with it, where like they, they halfway through the song, they like switch. It's like, I'm singing about Paul Walker, but now I'm singing about all the heists that we did with him. And it's like, you're, you're just the one and the same, huh? Okay, fine. Anyway, it's a good movie, but it's weird. It's a weird thing, and they did the best they could with a very unfortunate situation. Fat, uh, Fate of the Furious, we introduced uh, Dom's kid, and that's going to be important later. Uh, a little baby in eight, and there's yeah. a little kid in, in ten. Yeah, and then in Fast Nine, which I didn't see when it came out. I caught up with it before I saw Fast Ten. It's just called F9. It's called F9. Hmm. It sucks. You don't like F9? I didn't like F9 oh, at F9 all. Is, F9 is a blast. No, no I didn't it's like F9 one, at all. It's no. the one where they, they swing it on the cable. That's, and, that's, and I, I like a good cable. They, they, they launch a car into space. <laughs> I appreciate that they launch the car into space. Here's here's what sums up F9. It's it's not that like, oh, by the way, Dom has a brother we never mentioned before. And yeah, he's played, played by John Cena. John Cena, yeah. Like, it, that's 
stupid, but I accept that I mean, kind of stupid. W- by the time we get to the ninth, we're into like nonsense territory oh, yeah. already. Completely. So I'm not, all that's of, not what all I'm mad the at. soap opera nonsense is fine. That's all not what I'm mad at. The crazy. Uh, th- there's even a moment where they kind of realize they're immortal at one point. That's my problem. How is that a problem? Because because <laughs> what, what are you whinging about this time? <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Is, am I doing too much film criticism on this film criticism podcast? Uh, uh, I'll hear you out. What do you got? My my issue is only this. It's not it's not an unwatchable movie. I just think mm. it's the least of the series. Actually, no. Fast and Furious is the least. Fast of the and series. Fu- Fast and Furious is the fourth is junk. one is the worst. Yeah. It, it, it it does what it needs to do, but it's junk. This is my second least favorite of the series. Um, the idea that we're going to call attention to how invincible we all are to the mm. point that we're all basically immortal and then we're not actually going to do anything about that in the movie means to me I don't have to watch these anymore. <laughs> like I don't I seriously don't have to watch these anymore because you're literally yeah, telling well, me that nothing matters even to the characters in the movie now. C- consider that they've already they killed Letty and they brought her back I know. and they killed Han and they brought him back. I know and it keeps the, going. The, the villains all turn to the side of good. I know. Here here's the way to look at these Fast and Furious movies. Uh-huh. They are the Andy Sedaris movies. Yes. They are. They have the exact same tone. They have similar it. ambitions. They the have, Fast movies have bigger budgets and bigger stars. And, and less nudity. They're a lot less, less nudity. Yeah, a lot yeah. less nudity. Yeah, a lot of butt shots. Lo- whenever, lot, there's a, of, whenever there's a yeah, car a lot, race, a of, there's a lot of butts. And it's and it's rarely the main characters. Oh, no, it's never main We don't get to ogle the main characters no, the way they just sort of ogle extras. That would be rude. But the extras, sure, I, fair I know, game, uh, I guess. In I think it was in 6, mm. where um, Gal Gadot played a, like a... a she was in four through six. Agent. She was in four through six, and yeah. I think in in one there was she got like this kind of like cheesecake shot where she's in a bikini. I think that was in um, four. Maybe that was in four. I think it was in four. Mm. I thought that was in no, six, no. She, no, it was in five. There's a bit where she has to like distract someone, yeah, like yeah. by a beach, and she like takes off her top, yeah, and she's and, wearing and, a bikini or something. Like that. And you have all yeah. these like really handsome, muscular dudes. Oh, yeah. You think there'd be some like beefcake in there as well? Take off the shirts yeah. for God's sake! Yeah. What are we put, doing? Put them in a white one? tank top and spray them down. You'd do yeah. something lascivious, please. The only yeah. lasciviousness we get are in the the street race race sequences. Yeah, which with where, a bunch of extras. Yeah, a bunch of extras, and there's a lot of low, low shots of women's bottoms. Yeah, that's kind of all we get. Yeah, the Andy Sedaris movies. Let's go. Let's get in the hot tub. I do my best thinking when I'm topless. Yeah, kind it's of scenes. all of the scenes where there's going to be exposition. We might as well do it topless in a hot tub. Mm. Bless you for being honest about what you think the audience wants. Yeah, Andy Sedaris is providing exactly the same thing mm-hmm. that the Fast and Furious series is, just in in a much smaller scale, but with as much earnestness, mm-hmm. and you could argue just as entertaining. I I will say this: we're catching up to Fast mm. Ten. And someone made a joke a long time ago, not even that long ago, mm-hmm. that whenever we do a big retrospective conversation about every movie in a series before we mm-hmm. get to a new movie, it's because right. we're about to slam the new movie. <laughs> I like Fast 10 a lot. I like Fast 10 a lot, it's too. It's so much um, fun. And I will say this right now. They uh, do the abs- They deserve an Oscar for this. There is a scene in this movie where one of the new characters explains the plot of the first 10 movies within about a minute and a half and makes it seem not only that it makes sense, <coughs> but that it was organic. That it all, yeah. That it was just, of course, it led to this. How there's, else could this the, have possibly that, turned that out? That spy moment where, like, yeah, yeah a guy and like a, they're surrounded by screens, like, yeah. yeah, Dom Toretto started on the streets of L.A. and, yeah. uh, and now everything he does is like, and then he got a grant from this guy, Mister Nobody, and now we're here. It's, it's like it's, it's like played it's by the actor plays Jack Reacher in the it's new like, series. It's all. It's like it's uh, it's like if you tried to explain the plot of the first ten Jason Voorhees movies. Uh-huh. 
there was no plan. It was just a bunch of shit that they came up with, and half of it doesn't make any sense. But if you find a way to make it make sense, my God, give them an award mm. for the best exposition I've heard in yeah. years. <laughs> Incredible. And uh, the plot of this one is... Uh, it's essentially a sequel to Fast Five. Yeah. Um, there was a, a really wonderful action sequence. One of the best. Oh, in, so good. One of the best car scenes in it's cinema. so good. So much where, more uh, practical, too, which is cool. Yeah, where uh, two high-speed, high-powered racing cars driven by Vin Diesel and Paul Walker mm-hmm. yank a bank vault out of a wall. This gigantic multi-ton bank vault on yeah. cables. And their cars are so powerful, they can drag this thing through the streets of Rio de Janeiro, whipping around corners, and it's smashing through buildings like a wrecking ball. It's, it's so really cool. really awesome. I love it. So and, we go uh, back to that. And that it, was Joaquim de Almeida, I think, yeah, was the bad guy in that he movie. Guy. Uh, he was like some evil gangster, and that was his save. Yeah, he, he, like, he ran uh, all of crime in mm-hmm. Rio de Janeiro. And uh, uh, it turns out, we didn't spend a lot of time with that character. He had a son. And his son, is played yeah. by Jason Momoa, and Jason Momoa was there in that action sequence, and he, he we didn't was thrown him, off so. of a, Well, he was he we did, but we never actually like saw inside that particular car. Yeah. So if you look at that sequence, you can look at that car. So you repur- know, Jason Momoa was in that car. We, we see a lot of Fast Five. They're repurposing a lot of footage. They're mm. cutting in Jason Momoa to say, yeah. show that he was there, and uh, he was thrown out of a car. It turns out this character Dante is the character's name. Yeah. Uh, Named after he, my cat. Is a little off balance. Yeah. He's he's the Joker. He's, he's the Joker. He's, he's the Joker. absolutely. Uh, he's, he's like he's, flouncing he, it up. It, he's playing this really kind of. It's uh, like if Bugs Bunny was a bad guy. He's got yeah. the, he's got the same. Here's what's awesome about Dante as a villain. Hmm. It's a Jason Momoa is gets to overplay uh, as much as he wants. He's vamping. Yeah. He, it's like if Tim Curry was the bad guy in the mm-hmm. '80s. This is exactly how he'd play it. It's amazing, and I love Jason Momoa for it. Bless him. Uh, but the reason why he's a better villain. Than anyone we've had in this series, even more so, I would say, than Jason Statham, because they tried to humanize him right away. Hmm. Um, he has the exact same plot armor that the heroes do. Yeah. Every time something happens in this movie, or any of the Fast and Furious movies, that are absolutely absurd, but it has to happen because otherwise the heroes wouldn't survive. Like mm-hmm. that scene in Fate of the Furious where Dwayne Johnson grabs a torpedo as it's been, after it's been fired and redirects it. <laughs> That's like, right bare hands. It's awesome. It's unbelievable and stupid, but you buy it because the hero is doing it. Dante, as the villain, has the power to do that. Yeah. He is Bugs Bunny. He has Bugs Bunny Fast and Furious powers. So the scenes in the movies were normally... Vin Diesel or whoever would pull out all these weird, bizarre stunts in order to do everything that they needed to do. Every time they do that, Dante has three more moves mm. that screw them all over completely. And it's great. They are, <laughs> these characters are so overpowered by this point. Uh, you have to bring in the most cartoonishly overpowered villain in movie history to challenge yeah. them. And that's what they did. And it's fun. They can, they can even uh, evidently like metabolize drugs really quickly. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, there's, there's a, a scene where, where Han, eats, Han a, eats an LSD brownie. And it just wears off almost immediately. immediately. He he like there's was, one scene where oh, he trips was, out um, and then like and then like it's never comes up again and the rest yeah. of it takes place that same day. Yeah. Uh so yeah, we have Dante wanting to get revenge. Mm. Um Roman, Tyrese Gibson, mm. Tej, Ludacris, mm. Ramses, mm-hmm. Natalie Emmanuel. I think it's Ramsey. That's what I said. You said Ramses. No, Ramsey. I said Ramsey. Yeah, doesn't matter. I know. Uh, and uh, they have been called to Rome to mm. do a job of their own because mm. they're now spies. Yes. 
Uh, and it turns out that was a setup by Dante, and mm-hmm. he is actually... The truck they were supposed to heist has a bomb in it. The bomb... Mm-hmm. It, it may as well be, like, black with a little wick sticking out of the top with the word bomb written across it. Because <laughs> it's, it's big. It's, it's a this, big sphere it's a big gigantic that rolls sphere, down yeah. the street. And, uh, the, yeah, Dante hits a button, it blows out the back, and it starts rolling down the street. It's a neutron bomb, and it's going to rolling toward the Vatican. <laughs> it's like, I half expect this is the play first act of the movie. Yeah. I know, it's great. I, they I d- they do. They, they kind of do. They, use, they like, bump Vin, it with their Vin, cars. Vin Diesel thwacks a crane and it lacks like a big pinball uh, mm-hmm. ma- flipper and knocks it into a river where uh, it doesn't kill as many people. And I in fact, wanna... there's even a line of dialogue where they say, and there weren't that many casualties. If uh, There were you know, no casualties. They say there were no casualties. There were, no one died. People may have been injured, but no one died. Like they, they go out of their way to like do all these elaborate special effects to show that like cars are flying through the air. Somebody died. But, of course somebody. Yeah. But here's the thing. People in these movies get demolished in cars and walk away from it. And you know, I'm fine with that. It's mm. a movie. And it's, these movies are very consistent about that. If you're in a car, you're fine. Mm. If you're on a car, you're fine. If you're near a car, you're fine. If you're not, you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the rules. And they are very consistent about that in the Fast movies. And I, am, I appreciate that because I am okay with your rules being ridiculous as long as you abide by them. Yeah. It's only when you stop abiding by them that I start getting pulled out of the movie. And that's no fun. Uh, I forgot where I was going with this. Anyway, they're, there's, they're uh, most wanted now. It's the, same, it's the same opening as like half of the Mission Impossible movies. The thing goes wrong and now Ethan Hunt's the most wanted man in the world. Same thing happens with Dom. They all have the split up. Letty gets uh, sent to a secret prison in in uh, in the middle of nowhere, and and her like only person there with her is uh, Charlize Theron, a cipher who was like the guy, the woman who the killed, villain, yeah, from, who killed from Dom's Ace, yeah. ex girlfriend. Uh, so that's fun. Well, Dom's ex girlfriend and the mother of his child and the mother of his and, child. Um, uh, that's that's a hoot. Yeah, that's um, a great bit. Uh, everyone a, else is scampering where, off in uh, Europe, and then yeah. Dom has to like fight Dante constantly. Yeah, well, well, uh, and everyone also, splits up. Oh, and, and uh, uh, John Cena and, and, yeah, and say. Vin Diesel's son go on a cute road trip and together. John, John Cena is a completely different character oh, now. Yeah, he's, he's just, just like friendly do- dippy dude now. He's no longer that rough, gruff villain he was in the last I, it's movie. It's such. It's such because again. People are. I appreciate this is such a Catholic movie series. People get redeemed a lot. Yeah, they see the error of their ways. There's a lot of resurrection. Yeah, this Christ imagery. Yeah, it went fine. Everybody wears crosses. Again, consistency. It's fine. Okay, I accept that. But you know, uh, Jason Statham's character doesn't just entirely change personalities. He's still an asshole. Mm. But he's on. He's a good guy. He's just a good guy now, and it turns out he always was. He was never that bad, except for all the people he killed. But we'll let that go. They're so weird about his character because he was clearly designed to be the ultimate evil guy, and then they were like, "Ah, let's give him a spinoff and make him cuddly." <sighs> you fucked that up. Anyway, um, yeah, with John Cena, he was this stern, tough guy, and here he's he's cute. <laughs> he's so adorable, and I mm-hmm. like him. I like him fine. It's just it's just a totally different character that he's playing. This is a movie where everyone runs around like chickens with their heads cut off. Every scene is an excuse to do something. But every single thing we are concocting an excuse to do is awesome. Yeah. It looks cool. Louis Leterrier took over the director's chair on this one. Louis Leterrier knows how to do an action movie. Justin Lin, uh, from what I understand, directed for two weeks. The Mm -hmm. scene where Shirley Theron and uh, Michelle Rodriguez are fighting in, Mm -hmm. like, 
a, a super lab with, with, with lasers with a, with a surgery robot. Yeah. Uh, no director that time. No okay. director at all. Uh, the only time Charlize Theron was available was when was like during this brief period when there was no director. So essentially, <laughs> Charlize Theron and the second unit. Well, yeah, because it's always second, yeah, second, second unit does a lot of the action sequences anyway. But yeah, uh, well, you you would never know. these these movies are just fucking absurd, yes. and they're only getting more absurd. And I'm here for every bit of it. Yeah. Um, there's a weird earnest need to entertain. Yeah, it's like that gladiator thing. Are you entertained? Yeah. Uh, yes, I am. Thank yeah, you very uh, much. Fast movies. I'm gonna blow up a dam. Okay. Damn, do, do it. Do that yeah. shit. That sounds car, awesome. You launch a car how, into space. How are we getting out of this one? Let's do it. I liked an F9. There was uh they like equipped the cars with gigantic electromagnets and they oh, were yeah. turning and turning these knobs and washing machines were flying yeah. out of storefronts to but knock it over didn't trucks. affect the car that they were in. No, which is just so stupid. Physics doesn't make any sense. Like yeah. all the complaints you have about action yeah. movies are in these movies. Sure. And they're presented so straightforwardly that yeah. you're willing to forgive it for these films. Yeah. They there, just, they found the right tone. Yeah. I don't know how they've kept it going for so long. And, I, think, I, think, I think I think they kind they, of whipped it a little bit in F9, but my God, it's been so I, consistent. I, I like F9 a lot. I, I don't I, know why, but uh, I think you're nuts, but all right. Yeah. Uh, f- five, seven and, uh, and five and seven are my favorites. And I, I like nine and 10 as well. For me, it's um, five and six and three, which is a very different film. I think yeah. three, I think three is great. Yeah. Uh, and this is the first of two, maybe even three, uh, movies that yeah. are going to sort of close out the series. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, doesn't conclude. It ends on a cliffhanger. Yeah. Just like an old 40s serial. I so know, it's it really has, awesome. In sort of evoking that, that we're going to have these big set pieces, these big broad characters. Uh, everything's really over the top. It's just about dazzling you with stupidity. <laughs> I was reminded more of, more than ever of like a 1940s Kid like matinee series. Yeah, yeah, your Commando Cody, yeah. your Flash Gordons, yeah. and your, and, yeah. and those things are like cheap and earnest. This has the same earnest, but these things are made for. They're so this like four hundred million. I think a hundred so million went just to the cast. I understand. I'm sure it did uh, because they they Unless had to get the money back. That was yeah. all. Because there are a lot of them. I think now. Vin Diesel got like twenty million just by himself. I'm so, sure he did, um, and it, you know, worth it. These people, people see these. I movies. hope. I'm glad they all get a big paycheck. I really. Yeah, and you know and they do gangbusters overseas as well. Oh, yeah, and you know, what? Fact, and you know, I'm gonna look a, up. It's a really uh, awesome, like weird cast. If you think about it, like here's like one of like the main leads of one of the biggest movie franchises of all time, Ludacris. Mm. That's not. There's no disrespect to Ludacris. It's just who would have thought when Ludacris first emerged yeah. that uh, this would that this would be what happened. So um, it's great in Japan, uh, these movies are called Wild Speed. Uh, it's such a cooler yeah. name. The Fast and the Furious, less interesting. Wild Speed. Yeah. Um, Wild Speed X two. Yeah. Uh, Wild Speed X three Tokyo Drift. So I didn't yeah. change that one much. I'm with you so far. Wild Speed Max. Yes, this is the fourth one. Wild Speed Mega Max. <laughs> Wild Speed Euro Mission. Okay. Wild Speed Sky Mission. Mm-hmm. Wild Speed Ice Break. Mm-hmm. That's, 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 fa- that's Fate of the Furious. Great name. Wild Speed Super Combo. That was Hobbs, that's and, Hobbs Shaw. and Shaw. That's my favorite one. Wild Speed Super Combo. F9 was, was called Wild Speed Jet Break. Yes. <laughs> and this latest is called Wild Speed Fire Boost. Nice! <laughs> it's so much better! I have a so, theory. I don't know how true it is. I have uh, a theory that the reason why these movies aren't just called The Fast and the Furious Blank Oh. Um, the Fast and the Furious was a title they had to buy. Roger Corman made a uh, street racing crime movie in the fifties. In fact, it was the first 
movie ever released by uh, what would become American International. Yeah. Uh, called The Fast and the Furious. And when they were making the original Fast and Furious movie, they were bouncing around a couple of ideas. I found this amazing quote from one of the producers or writers who were talking about the list of names they were thinking of before they went with Fast and Furious. And if you'll work, do you remember what, uh, at the end of the original The Fast and the Furious, what the name was of the street racing, like, super tournament? Oh, was? no, I don't. It was called Race Wars. Race Wars. Yeah. Don't call it Race Wars. They were th- they were seriously considering calling the movie Race Wars. Don't fucking call your movie that, Race this Wars. This would not be a billion dollar <laughs> franchise if they were all called Race Wars. Holy shit. That was a bad idea. So whoever came up with the so, idea... I hope some intern said, that, yeah. that doesn't sound like you think it does. That's, you shouldn't put that in the movie at all, but we're stuck with it now, I guess. But don't call the movie that. Um, so they bought this name from uh, Roger Corman. Hmm. Roger Corman apparently like accepted like... Uh, like um, uh, what am I thinking of? Um, footage, okay. Like uh, stock footage for his various movies in exchange for the title. Love and it. I'm like, but I'm wondering though if they kept calling them the Fast and the Furious, would they have to keep paying Roger Corman? Probably. Is, this, is that why we we have to call this Fast Ten instead of the Fast and Furious Ten, yeah. so that they don't have to pay Roger Corman? Yeah. If they when they I think um, I don't know if that's true, but it sounds. I true think Hobbs me. and Shaw. The full title was uh, the Fast and Furious presents Hobbs Fast and, Shaw. and the Fast and the Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. So. Yeah. For uh, the first, the third, third, and Hobbs and Shaw, tenth, kind of Hobbs yeah. and Shaw, they they had to pay Roger Corman. I I assume I don't know if that's how it works. If I anyone th- knows more details, I would love to hear them. But I, that's a theory. Knowing Roger Corman, that's probably the deal. I wouldn't be yeah. surprised if that was the deal. Anyway, so yeah, Fast Ten, very fun flick. Mm-hmm. I look forward to the next one. I, I, just, I, I want him to keep getting crazier. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm okay with that. All right, the next one we got, this is actually, uh, it, this was not a theatrical release. I'm actually surprised it wasn't. This mm. is a Hulu original. Uh, it is the second remake this year uh, directed by... Mm. Ron Shelton. No, no, Ron Shelton did the original. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, this is direct from director Calmatic, who uh, mm. has done a lot of music videos uh, in the past. He recently directed the remake of House Party, which, oh yeah, which wasn't particularly good, but there was one bit towards the end of that movie which is just inspired comic lunacy for well, about ten minutes. And you said it was like um, it was like a self aware thing, right? The uh, that one bit was yeah. yeah. The rest of the movie, not so much. It's mm. not particularly clever. But I saw when I was watching that movie, like okay, I'm just it's just not a particularly good remake of House Party. And then I saw that one 10-minute bit. I'm like, oh, so Colmatic is actually a really good, interesting director who may be hampered by stodgy, formulaic material. So I was really excited to see what he would do next. And what he did is a remake of White Man Can't Jump, which, if you've never seen it, is great. It, it, it's, um, White Man Can't Jump, Mm -hmm. as the title might have you believe, Mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, was trying to be really confrontational Mm -hmm. in conversations about race. Yes. Uh, about uh, it was about uh, Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson, mm, our, our uh, basketball hustlers, basketball hustlers who uh, became kind of rivals, but then kind of became friends. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the dialogue in that movie is devoted to uh, confronting a lot of cliches about race. Yeah. And a lot of cliches about how race was depicted in movies, in particular. Yeah. Uh, but 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 here's the thing: and, there's there's more to the movie than that, and I'm really glad yeah. I rewatched it because I hadn't seen it in many years. There's more to the movie than that. It's on top of that. It's a really good character-driven drama, and it's also very funny. About yeah. characters who are very much beholden to their... Well, okay, their, their character flaws are what drive them. Yeah. And they also are constantly their undoing. 
And it's just an astounding couple of characters, and Rosie Perez plays a great character in it mm-hmm. as well. Uh, that is just the dialogue sparkles. There's a couple of the, there's a lot of smack talk in it, and some of the insults haven't aged well, but less than you'd think, actually. Mm. It's only like a couple of cringe moments. Um, incredible dialogue, a somewhat unpredictable plot, which is very, very cool. It doesn't hit a lot of the sports cliches that you're expecting. Yeah. The performances are excellent. See it? It's so fucking good. I'm so glad I rewatched it because I remembered it being good. It's seriously one of my favorite sports movies. I'm so glad okay. I rewatched it. I yeah. love it to pieces. Um, so we're doing a remake, uh, and this time we're going to take kind of the premise of of mismatched basketball hustlers and then throw out everything else. These are not the same yeah. characters. It's These a, are not their sons. It takes this place in yeah, modern modern yeah. day. It's a complete remake from yeah. uh, fresh material. And uh, you said that. Kalmatic um, hmm. might have been really interesting, but he was just shouldered with formulaic material. That was my theory after hmm. seeing House Party. It happened here too, didn't it? Yeah, this, this, this is, is a this is very, as formulaic as they come. This is uh, a very thin remake. This is they 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 sanded almost, off yeah. all of the edges, all the, uh, of the character, all of the interesting dialogue, well, the, all the interesting plot. They disnified this, which is weird because it's R-rated for language. It's R-rated. Yeah, they they cuss a lot in this. <laughs> the and plot is so the uh, pat. It's so frustrating. Trying to uh, tell a Frank story that's set in 2023 mm-hmm. about race and, and or racism or mm-hmm. uh, uh, stereotyping other people, mm-hmm. uh, pigeonholing other people based on their race. Uh, all of that is Saturday morning cartoon now. It's like yeah. after school special. It's like uh, yeah. some, something you might see in an episode of Saved well, by there, the Bell. There's a lot of TV uh, that's kind of been like yeah. based on this kind of thing. And again, it can, it's still, it's changed dramatically, mm. but the, the conversation is still relevant and you can mm. still mine it for humor and social commentary yeah. well, and, and drama. You can still, and still the, do all of that. The, the commentary here is uh, these two could learn a little bit from each other, couldn't they? Uh, the two main characters. Yeah, um, we've got uh, Kamal played by uh, right. Cinco Walls. Uh, Cinco Walls, and I like him. I, I like Cinco Walls a lot. Yeah, um, he uh, he plays a guy who was uh, in high school. Mm. He was like the hottest basketball prospect in the country. Yeah, and then something ha- we don't find out until later in the film, but something happened that ruined that, and now he is barely scraping by as a delivery driver, but he's still playing basketball every single day and kind of reminded and angry about his lost glory. Uh, and he ends up being hustled in a very different, much less dramatically satisfying way uh, by a, a white basketball player named Jeremy, played by Jack Harlow, who I had it explained to me is kind of a big deal. <laughs> um, I'm not. Uh, he's a DJ. He's a, um, he's a, he's a rapper. He's a hip. He does. Yeah. And I've listened to his music. And you know what? I, I get it. Yeah, he's cool. I just I was I did not have my finger on that pulse. Mm. I had to have that explained to me. Him being in the movie is apparently rather a big deal. Yeah, uh, and I didn't like him. I, I think he's not a great actor. They, uh, he, he they clearly realize that what he's good at is being laid back, mm. and then they don't ask him to do anything else. Yeah, and his character trait and his character traits are nothing more than like his weird habits. He yeah. he, he drinks wears organic juices. He's like a little bit mm. of a hippie, and he talks he, about he meditation. likes to meditate and stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and and you could have. It's weird actually that they don't play that up more. Like he talks about how like he's in Beverly Hills, but they still try to add that like oh, but also he's impoverished and like yeah. He's He's only living in this really big apartment because his parents gave it to him, and I'm like, that's still privilege, white parents, man. Can't yeah, job. Like, yeah. what and, the fuck? And they don't. And uh, he's so laid back that none of the drama really works. No. Uh, not not with uh, with uh, the the 
uh, single walls character. Yeah. And not with, and he has a girlfriend as well. Yeah. And, uh, she, and, she, um, and, she, and she's she... played by, is that, um, I think that's Tatiana. Mm. Yeah. She's played by an actress named Laura Harrier. Yeah. And, uh, and they're supposed to have like sort of a, a little bit of a tempestuous relationship. Mm-hmm. Like they don't uh, meet eye to eye. She's really ambitious yeah. and he's not like following her to where she needs to go with her career. Mm-hmm. And she gets really mad at him. And I feel like she's running lines with him. Like she's trying yeah. to audition for this well, guy because, because he's not matching her energy he's, or he's not in the yeah, scene with he's her. He's not matching her energy. And like, seriously, like, and because he's playing it so chill and laid back, he sounds more sensitive than she, like her dialogue makes him out to be. Mm. It's like, you never really listen to me. Actually, he's really laid back and seems to be just like listening to you constantly. Like it kind of undermines the story. And then the idea that this guy would like, bounce off of his basketball partner and they like sort of bring out something in each other mm-hmm. really falls apart because weirdly enough the script only has a uh, single walls character really learn anything yeah like he's the one he learns about meditation he learns how to be more present he learns uh you know he's cares more for his dad played by lance reddick in one of his final roles um he actually has a really sweet like final scene where he tells his son, like, there's a really good line where he says, like, your family deserves to see you experience joy. Yeah. Which I thought was actually, like, a really tender, like, someone really meant that scene. Like, that was a moment of genuine sincerity played by a really great actor. Really could have benefited that from, from that for the rest of the film. Because <laughs> the rest of the film was really absent that kind of sincerity. It feels really just formulaic for so much of it. And then and they introduce elements for Jack Harlow's character, too, that are, like, theoretically... Could really bring out his character. You know, he, he blew out his knees. He was a big basketball prospect as well. He blew out his knees. Uh-huh. And he's constantly thinking about, like, various health regimes or something like that. Some way to get him back to where he needs to be. And where he really wants to be so that he could play professionally. Uh, but he's also doing a lot of drugs to deal with the constant pain that he's in. And you think to yourself, oh, so we're going to be talking about opioids and maybe addiction. And this is something we can not address again at all the rest of the film. No, no. And if, what? They, they bring it up a lot. And there's even like the dramatic scene where it's like, oh, he's going to injure himself again. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it just sort of, this sort of happens and goes past. Speaking and of someone really with a knee injury, I am constantly terrified of doing the shit he does to his knees because it means I'm going to need surgery again mm. or something. Like it could be really catastrophic. There's one bit I like in this movie. It's a tiny joke, okay. but I like it. He is, uh, um, he, he gets into a pissing match with another like bat. He, he's making his living as a basketball coach. He's right. teaching people like one on one how to be better basketball players. And there's another guy at the gym that he's doing this at who kind of takes the court from him and he starts talking like he's the cock of the walk. And Jack Carl is like, "You are cock of nothing," and I challenge you to a to a basketball match. And then they're about to do it, and it's all building up. And then like a beeper goes off in his phone. He's like, "Oh shit, I'll be right back." Mm-hmm. Uh, and he gets his parking validated, and he runs out of the parking garage as fast oh, yeah, as he can because he got, can't afford parking. He can't afford parking, poor, so yeah. he, he drives out of the parking garage and then drives back in. Has to find gets parking a new ticket, again. Yeah. And as someone who has been poor, I have had to do that. Yeah, we had to do that at screenings and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that's I, we, oh, we have two in a day. Yeah, we're gonna have to yeah, go out, go out, and, and come, come back, back into the parking lot. This yeah. job doesn't pay very well, but um, <laughs> but uh, but I, that was a, that was a real moment though. Yeah. That was amusing. That felt like that felt like that actually happened to somebody. Mm. 
So much of this movie feels like none of this actually happened to anybody. No one had a meaningful connection to this. This is just taking the the basic idea of White Man Can't Jump and making it as generic as humanly possible. Yeah, yeah. And that's so frustrating because the original holds up really well. It still feels dynamic and exciting. Well, it's it's another case of yeah. if, if you're going to remake it, you know, update it in some significant way. Do something. Just, yeah. do, I, well, what's weird name. is that I was in rewatching it, I thought to myself, this is actually one of those rare instances in which I would have actually been very happy to get a legacy sequel. Okay. Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson, what are they doing right now? They clearly hmm. wouldn't play basketball as good as they used to, but, you know, they might have some juice left in the right. tank. Maybe they're... I mean, maybe they're both they've... charming movies. Like, they're both Wesley charming Snipes is just utterly dazzling. They're both, they're both yeah. really charismatic actors when they want to be, and... They usually want to be, and they're great. If you ever watched that, they did another movie together called Money Train. Very underrated. I, did I feel. not see Money Train. It's underrated. It's a weird film. It kind of like switches genres a couple of times, but I think it works and it's cool. Um, yeah, what are they doing right now? What are they up to? Are they still hustling? Are they? Do they have other like basketball players that they know? Are they still angry? I don't know. There's so much you could do. Just get them into a room together, and I would be excited. Uh, and said we have this, just too not just bland, nothing too generic. Movie, like, yeah. like, again, single walls, talented. I can imagine Jack Harlow and his very limited range being used to good effect in something. Mm-hmm. If you gave him the exact right role that was tailored to him, yeah, this is not that. See the original; it's also on Hulu. Just click on that. Just don't mm-hmm. click on this one. You, you don't want that. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not for you. You don't want that at all. Okay. Don't yeah. Don't watch it. All right. Um, let's see here. What do we got? We have so many movies. Mm. Uh, I'm going to talk about real fast uh, a movie that I saw and you didn't call okay. about my father. And this is a De Niro movie. This is a Robert De Niro movie, um, and it's uh, co-written and by and it stars a stand-up comic. I'm not really familiar at least I'm not familiar with him as a stand-up comic. I've seen him in small roles in various films. Mm. Uh, named Sebastian Maniscalco. Yeah. Sebastian Maniscalco plays the son of an Italian American of, of an Italian immigrant played by Robert De Niro. Mm. Uh, he they are very Italian American, lot of cliches, lot of lot of cologne, a lot of Italian food, a lot of hand talking. Like it's very I, I'm Italian American. I know the cliches. They're doing all the cliches. It's uh, the Italian American version of a big fat Greek wedding. That's the vibe. Sebastian Maniscalco is in love with and has been dating an artist played by Leslie Bibb. Mm. Leslie Bibb is one of... Leslie Bibb was like Anna Ferris, where she's incredibly talented and funny, and I don't know why they're not a bigger star. Like, Leslie, Ellie, Leslie Bibb does well for herself. She does, she does well for herself. She should be huge. She should be huge. And Anna Ferris at least has had like a big hit TV series, but like seriously, they should both be yeah. two of the biggest comedy stars on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. I think they're just really, really talented. Um, he's in love with Leslie Bibb. She comes from like Mayflower money, like really old New England money. Okay, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, he wants to propose, and he wants to use his grandmother's wedding ring. And his father's like, "Nah, I'm not gonna do that unless I meet the parents." And it's like, "Wow, we're doing this, okay, okay." Grandpa Nero's gonna meet the parents. That's that's funny. Um, they end up spending Fourth um, of July weekend. At Leslie Bibb's family's big estate, her mom's played by Kim Cattrall, uh, and uh, it's it's a it's a comedy of errors. It is 
where Robert De Niro is a certain way. And other people are like, we're not used to people being a certain way. And Robert De Niro is like, ha but I am. And then, and then he's like, I'm embarrassed by my father, but then I also managed to show my wiener to everybody in an awkward sequence. Uh, I, I, I resent yeah. the treatment of uh, human male bodies. Nudity. Yeah, male nudity is, as a well, joke. Like, yeah, uh, female yeah. nudity always presented as titillating in some way yeah. uh, for the male characters yeah. or made by the male filmmakers, typically. Unless, the, unless um, they are old or not thin. In that's which true. Case, in and, which and case, then it's, it is it's demonized as, in yeah, a really grotesque, in a really um, cruel and insulting way. Yeah, uh, there are several films like within a short span where um, large elderly nude women were monsters, like in these horror movies. Yeah, uh, it was in part of Barbarian, as part of yeah. it. It was yeah. um, a couple others, uh, and yet uh, male nudity very rarely uh, eroticized. Shirtless, yes. Yeah, eroticized. Pantsless, joke. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah uh, if, if you see full frontal male nudity, it's rarely sexy full frontal male nudity. No, it's almost it's almost exclusively a gag. Yeah, like, oh, um, my God, I didn't expect to see that. That's silly. Like, the male uh, body is a silly thing. I remember, I can't remember which Will Ferrell movies, probably mm. plural it was, where, uh, like, he's in short shorts or he's in, like, mm. some really revealing outfit. And it's like, he's got a, his physique is nicer than mine. Do we have to look at... <laughs> To mock yeah. this man. Stop doing that to yourself, Will Ferrell. Yeah. Um, I should, by all rights, really dislike this movie. It's not mm. particularly well made. It's got that very kind of slapdash, kind of lazy comedy overall aesthetic yeah, that kind of e- cinematography. Even comedy lighting. Yeah, and that, that's, not, that's not bad or anything like that. It's just not very interesting to watch. The jokes largely don't land. They really don't. It's not, it, Very few of them are, like, painful, mostly. They're just sort of like, oh, I get it. Nah. And yet, I found myself really liking it. And I did this for a very particular personal reason that I cannot guarantee will happen to anyone listening to this. I mean, if, if it made you laugh. Well, I didn't. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> That's the problem. Okay, then go on. <laughs> Robert De Niro reminded me of my grandfather and my dad. Oh, that's it. Okay. That's all it is. He's playing mostly. He's playing my grandfather. He's a little bit my dad. Mm. I'm Italian American. Uh, my father was very Italian American, and my grandfather was actually an Italian immigrant. Uh, there are things in this movie. Sebastian Maniscalco, Italian American. These were like the things that our family would joke about with each other about being Italian American. Are they funny? Mm. No. Are they familiar? Yes. This was very homey for me a lot of the time. And as a result, I'm watching this movie, and this is a movie about a guy who's kind of embarrassed by his father. We all know what it's like to be embarrassed by a family member or a friend or whatever, uh, and but realizes how much he cares for him. Mm. Very schmaltzy. Not unreal, but schmaltzy. But it's made from someone who is clearly very affectionate and cares about that person. Mm. This is not a movie. This is a Father's Day card. It doesn't Which, work as a movie. It works as a Father's Day card. So it's something you want to see with your exactly. dad or your grandfather. If, you, if, okay. if this sounds like, oh, I've got an embarrassing deal with my dad or my, we're kind of uncomfortable with emotion around each other, whatever like that. You can see this movie with them and you can just sort of look at them in the middle of it and go, eh? And then that's your Father's Day, I love you. That's, 
That's what this is. There's enough genuineness in terms of actual care and affection for these characters that I don't dislike the movie. It's not a particularly good movie, but I don't think it's even trying to do that. I think it's literally just trying to reach people who have maybe this kind of relationship with their parents, particularly Italian-Americans, and be able to say like, oh, that's kind of sweet. That one's for us, isn't it? Hmm. And that's it. That's the, the end-all, be-all of its ambition. And that is a vi- that's, that's a pretty low bar, but there aren't a lot of those, actually. Hmm. So I can't be mad at it. It's not great, but I ended up kind of liking it. And based on entirely my own personal shit. So again... If anything I said sounds like eye-rolling, I have no interest, this sounds like crap, you're not going to like this movie. I can almost guarantee it. If anything about it sounds like, yeah, this sounds like a movie I'd watch with my grandparents and they would enjoy it because it's mm. mild and and it has its heart in the right place. Yeah. And yeah. I will not be offended watching it with them. That's what this is yeah. for. I suppose there's a place for like innocuous Hollywood comedies. There's a place for it. And I was, seriously, like this movie made me, I don't think it did so intentionally, it made me question the purpose of cinema <laughs> because they don't all have to be great in order to be good. Mm. They don't all have to be ambitious. They just have to be able to do something that justifies their existence. And that's what this one does. It's kind of sweet. It's not particularly good, but it might be a movie you can see with your family or your father on father's day. And that's that. I'm going to move on. Uh, tell me about uh, this one Shutter movie you saw and I didn't. Yeah. It's Husera uh, uh, the, the Bone Woman? Wissera. Oh, sorry. Wissera the Bone Woman. I didn't um, see it. I didn't know how to pronounce it. Sorry. Uh, this is a great movie. Oh, I, wow. I love Wissera the Bone Woman. Oh, shit. Um, okay. Uh, it's it's a Mexican film. It's mm-hmm. by, I think it's a first-time director. Her name is Michelle Garza Cervera. Okay. And um, I think she may have done some shorts. Uh, first feature. Mm. And it's about a young woman. Uh, played by an actress named Natalia Solian, mm. uh, who is trying to get pregnant. Okay. Uh, she and her and her boyfriend are trying to have a, a baby together. And uh, and she does get pregnant. Uh, but it turns out this pregnancy is opening up a big can of worms for her. Mm. Uh, because we start to see uh, some flashbacks to when she was young, how she ran away from home and hung around in, like, punk clubs, and had these grand ambitions to uh, move out and sort of take on the world with her lover, her female lover, mm. uh, played by an actress named uh, Mera uh, Bataya. Okay. And they were going to be like awesome punk rock lesbians r- raving, raging against the, the world. Okay. And now she's pregnant and married to a man and sort of falling into this pit of heteronormativity. Mm. And she's very torn. Yeah, and her and she's reunites with her ex girlfriend and you know remembers all of the good times and her ex girlfriend really resents the path that she's chosen to go down. Hmm. This is a horror movie, and all of the horror springs from that kind of resentment. Uh, Sounds it, great, and and of course there's a lot of body horror elements as well because hmm. you know she's, pregnancy body pre- yeah, changing, pre- yeah pregnancy body changing, uh, and this notion that something uh, demonic might be happening with the child, right. Uh, and she starts having these weird hallucinations. She sees people like falling out of buildings and then standing up again. Uh, she has a, there's this really wonderful nightmare sequence near the end where she sees a bunch of bodies just sort of like writhing together and they have no faces. Uh, and there's a lot of bone crunching. Uh, <laughs> if you're sensitive to like bone snapping sound effects, boy, howdy, this is the film for you. They went uh, through a lot of celery. 
They sure, yeah, there's, there's <laughs> the the foley artists are just like sitting on a mountain of celery, just getting all those cool bone cracking noises. Uh, I appreciate that the the movie is actually going through a lot more of her personal journey, this main character, mm-hmm. rather than the demonic stuff. But at the same time, it actually has like a little bit of a human face to the demonic stuff as well. She's afraid something might be happening with her baby. Uh, maybe she's being haunted by these demonic beings who are sort of lurking out of the shadows. Uh, and it's kind of understood that a lot of the older women in the neighborhood, they know what's going on. Like They, mm, they, they know what's... yeah. It's like, okay, I'm not going to mention there's a demon. I'm not going to mention there's a demon. Okay, I think there's a demon. Okay, meet us out in the cemetery in the middle of the night. Bring these four items. We're going to take care of this shit. It's like, like there's a, sort of this neighborhood know-how. And that, that's yeah. sort of like an extrapolation of uh, the way uh, people talk about pregnancy. Like women who have been pregnant before. Mm-hmm. Here's what's going on. We know what's yeah. going on. Only this time it's like, yeah, we know. It's a bone demon. We know how to deal with this mm-hmm. kind of thing. Every so, midwife yeah. gets the bone demon training. Yeah, yeah. You know? so, yeah. Uh, so there's this sort of sense of female community and a, a little bit of a sense of female queer community mm. where, that really kind of knows how to deal with this. They're really kind of, in a very real way, rejecting heteronormativity as the demonic presence. And I love that. That's great. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. Oh, man. Like, queerness, queerness was the out, and she rejected that, and now she's kind of being demonically punished for it. Nice. And that, that's a really cool, like, it, it's not even subtext. It's just the text yeah, of the yeah, movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and, and, but, you know, it's at the same time, it's not, uh, it's like, you know, slow dread. Of, it's a horror movie. So there's a lot of shadowy scenes, a lot of long scenes where people just sort of looking out the window. There's this really uh, penetrating scene where she's looking out a window at uh, the, into, into the room across the street. Yeah. She's kind of see like the room is lit and she can see people inside. Yeah. And she sort of sees this shadowy figure in this lit room climbing out onto the balcony and just falling into the street. <laughs> and then it gets up and it's really kind of terrible. Oh, creepy, yeah. yeah. Wonderful, creepy scenes like that. Um, it climaxes in a weird way, in a way that's not entirely satisfying. Ah, oh, bummer. Because it, it like kind of turns a little abstract and you're not really sure how the story was supposed to conclude. Yeah. I feel like it would have benefited from maybe a little bit more of a, a solid denouement to the story, a little bit mm. more, th- something a little bit more thematic. Mm. Uh, that's kind of its only weakness is that it kind of leaves you, leaves you in a little bit of a weak place. But up until then, I like everything that was happening in this that's movie. Awesome. I like all of the crunchiness. Uh, <laughs> says crunchy. But more crunchy. horror movie should be crunchy. I think. Yeah, it's a, it yeah. says crunchy frog quite clearly. Um, <laughs> Uh, and and the lead actress is really great, you know, just sort of in, in depicting all of this, uh, these wonderful sense of dread. Um, yeah, could have gone a little further with the horror imagery, could have gone a little further with the climax. Not that I want action, sort of action-y climaxes to my horror movies, but it needed to sort of come, come it together, to come together. It needs to, yeah. There needs to be, like, something uh, to, to explain the, the this is ending now. Yeah, they were yeah. coming to it. We're coming to a conclusion. Like, and a point. Uh, you had this really interesting story, and we had. I loved all of the flashbacks to like sort of the mm. the queer punk rock scene because I'm a sucker for that kind of shit. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I wish it had sort of cut, like brought its queerness together in a little bit more of a solid way. That is just uh, just sort of a theme of the movie. Otherwise, mm. but yeah, I, I really really loved it. I was really excited by it. I think it's really scary. Cool. Um, yeah, it does everything it wants to and more. Uh, oh. So yeah, go. 
stick this one out. It is on Shutter. Hmm. Uh, Shutter's been really good. I I always got to talk about how great Shutter is because uh, they hmm. they've been really good about not just producing their original content. They're actually you know distributing a lot of independent movies hmm. that other filmmakers are making. They're not just funding it, and uh, they're also really good about going uh, to international markets. Yeah, and finding just great horror movies they've, and and distributing those. They've they've got good taste. Not everything they do is a winner, but hmm. usually if it's like a, a Shutter exclusive, it's probably worth checking. Yeah, out. there's there's yeah. really good chance that you're going to get something at least interesting yeah and uh, and which brings me to the film i watched because i had a choice between watching that film oh, and i feel conflicted yeah. about it because it sounds amazing or watching another new shutter movie called influencer and i picked influencer and i'm glad i did because while it sounds like i would have really enjoyed the movie you saw i really enjoyed this movie too and i won't really okay. see it yeah and i'm not hearing a lot of people talk about it um this comes from a director uh, named Curtis David Harder, who had previously done another Shutter exclusive, another horror movie with a queer theme, Spiral. Uh, oh, I didn't was, see that one. W- yeah. Which was about uh, like a same-sex couple moving into a small town. Oh, Spiral! Yes, I did see Spiral. Yeah, and you liked yeah, it. Yeah, I liked sorry. Spiral. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sorry. Yes, this is a, this sorry, is a, sorry. I, 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 there are many the mo- horror movies named Spiral. Uh, so Sp- I, just, there, yeah. I think that same year, around that same year, the new Saw movie was called Spiral. Spiral yeah. There was the uh, Japanese film Spiral. No, the the, 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 yeah. the Shutter movie Spiral. Yeah, is actually yeah, it's quite good. I, yeah. I liked. Um, that's about uh, how there's this sort of like demonic function between uh, that spreads throughout all of bigotry. Like it's all connected by this yeah. demonic force. I, I That's like great. that. Like, yeah. uh, um, and, and, and it fetishizes like old VHS kind of tech, which I also appreciate. Uh, so this, the, his new movie is more of a standard thriller. There's not really a supernatural element to it. All right. uh, and I'm going to be very careful with how much I say. Because okay. while it's not necessarily... Like mind blowing plot twists, a la whatever movie you're thinking of right now that had a mind blowing plot twist. <laughs> it does develop in unexpected ways, and I was genuinely surprised okay. by things that happened in this movie. So I'm going to be very careful. And if it sounds like I'm describing something that isn't very exciting, it's because I don't want to ruin where it goes. The setup is uh, there's a young woman who is a social media influencer, and she is in Thailand doing a whole bunch of uh, sightseeing and various videos in order to build her following. Every single thing that she does, every single picture that she takes, it looks really, really nice in the camera, but when the camera pulls out, you realize she is completely alone. She's totally isolated. She has no meaningful connection to anybody. Uh, And while she is trying to figure out what to do with herself, uh, what to do with her life, uh, she ends up uh, running into a much more of a carefree, free spirit. They're not even online. A uh, woman named CW. Uh, She's named CW. Yeah, the not after the not after the network. Uh, right. <laughs> the protagonist is named Madison. She's played by Emily Tennant. CW is played by a really excellent uh, actor named Cassandra Naud. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, big star making turn from them. In this movie. Like, okay. I want to see them in a lot more things. Really great role. Um, she starts showing her the real Thailand. Uh, Madison ends up getting stuck in Thailand because her passport gets stolen. And now she's kind of just finally, like, kind of free to do whatever. And uh, this leads them to plot point. <laughs> and I'm going to leave it there. Something happens in the plot. Ah. And then... What you uh, it's think? One of, it's, one of these movies we can't talk about. I, it's happened so early, I can't remember. But it happened in a very satisfying way. 
um, the, the opening credits of this movie, it's kind of like that movie Fresh, happened 20 minutes in. <laughs> because right. because I, I the movie didn't one. get yeah. started really until here. You think, you think you know what movie you're watching, you're actually watching this movie. And then as soon as it did plot point, I thought to myself, oh, I know what kind of movie we're in. So now this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And then that didn't happen. <laughs> and then something else happened that made just as much sense, but was a totally different way to tell the story. And then from there on, it becomes much more of an exciting thriller about uh, what more can possibly happen now. How can... Escalate it. How can this escalate and how can a perfectly laid plan go horribly awry mm. constantly? And will the person in, in the, enmeshed in that figure out a way to get out of it and do they deserve to? It's a very tricky tightrope to walk. It's yeah. a bit like it's not the same thing, but I would I got um, kind of Dial M for Murder vibes okay. out of this. Where if you've seen Alfred Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder, it's one of his stagier films, but um, the opening half of it is a guy planning the perfect murder, and the perfect murder is so perfect, it seems to be planned out in such meticulous detail that you think to yourself, "Oh, well, that guy's going to get away with it." He's thought out everything. And then like one thing goes wrong and it all collapses like a house of cards. And it's just trying to figure out, did I pick up all the pieces? Did I remember when I put my fingerprints on? All of this stuff. It's that level of it was perfect and now it is chaos in a very different way. But yeah. that's the kind of overall impression I got. It's very Hitchcockian in that regard. Um, great performances. Clever screenplay, not so ingenious it's going to blow your mind. It's not like mm -hmm. the first time you saw The Sixth Sense and you're like, oh my god. Like, it's, not, <laughs> it's not like that. It just unfolds in an unexpected way. Okay. And it is incredibly satisfying. It's really smart. It actually has some things on its mind about what it is, what, what we project onto influencers and what influencers might actually experience and how maybe they deserve more respect than they get or less. Right. Say. I'm not going to ruin the movie by telling you. Um, um, it's it's smart. It's really wonderfully acted. Seriously, if just see it for Cassandra Nod, even if you don't buy anything else, she's fantastic here. Really multifaceted, excellent performances. Um, this is great. This is a great thriller. I highly recommend this to everybody. I just don't want to ruin it any more than I, I can, you know, because some of the twists happened early on. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of uh, films coming up pretty soon. Mm about uh, horror movies about influencers yeah uh, it's, and it's the job du jour it, it was um it was the one of the big things i saw in that thomas jane vampire movie recently i think it was just called slayers oh I um, didn't tell you. yeah where uh it's about how vampires are kind of luring influencers into their circle sure partly to feed on them but partly it's like well this is where the power is now so mm -hmm. vampire influencers are like the next thing well there's so uh, it's, it's really it's, fun that's the one where they they have like the batman on screen punch sound effects oh that's yeah, fun yeah. the idea of an influencer is interesting because from a movie perspective you can get a lot out of it you can do the thing where you have zero respect for them and you look at them as though they're completely out of touch mm. and it's basically like oh these these people are like destined to die in the slasher movie kind of thing or you can focus on the fact that influencers lead really weird lives and they can find themselves in situations that other people wouldn't they travel a lot they meet interesting people. You can 
engineer a, a reason to put an influencer in almost any situation. And as a screenwriter, that would be a very useful trick. Yeah. Because sometimes it's just a matter of, I would love to set a movie here or in this situation, but I have to reverse, like, I have to reverse engineer how uh-huh. to get everyone there and in that place. But if it's just, hey, everybody, today on our on my Instagram feed, we're going to one of the weirdest places on earth. Boom. Done. It's an actual thing that happens. <laughs> we're there. It's so quick. It's so efficient. Uh, and this is part of that, but it's also about more than that. And it's it's just a really excellently tightly constructed thriller right. and i really liked it a lot so all right, all right. If, if you want to see a really tightly constructed thriller with some really cool curveballs in it this is excellent stuff so i highly recommend it um all right do you want to talk okay so we've got three more movies left uh-huh. uh the wrath of becky you hurt my feelings and still what should we talk about next um uh, well let me talk about still okay that's go. uh the one i got to say i guess right. i haven't seen the other two um still is a documentary film uh, it's on Apple TV, and it's a documentary about the career of Michael J. Fox. Uh, Michael J. Fox, an excellent actor, by the way. Oh, amazing actor. Uh, a little bit ambivalent in terms of how Hollywood treated him, mm. because uh, he... Uh, he was kind of pigeonholed into sort of like young hotshot roles. Well, he was a very young looking actor. Yeah, it's very he, easy to, for that to happen. And, to, and he's in his sixties now. He still looks young. Yeah, he just uh, has those just features. He has yeah. young features. Um, and yeah, when he was a teenager, he you know left Canada, uh, essentially came like almost like unaccompanied to the to the U.S. Like he was mm. dropped off. It's like okay, <laughs> bye. Have a good Hollywood career. Be an actor. He's like yeah. thirteen years old. Yeah. Uh, his first movie was Midnight Madness. Oh, weird. Yeah. Uh, Mid- Midnight Madness is a wonderful, uh, kid-friendly uh, scavenger hunt movie from yeah. 1980. It's got David Naughton in it and uh, Catherine Mary Stewart, uh, Eddie Deason. Uh, wonderful, wonderful comedy. Mm. Uh, yeah, Michael J. Fox is like the little brother in that one. Yeah. Uh, and throughout, like, that was 1980. And by 1985, he was the biggest star on the planet. Yep, he was in a uh, hit sitcom. He was in a hit set. He was in... Uh, Facts uh, Live. No, no fam- Family Ties. Family Ties. The other... They, they both started with an F. Yeah. Family Ties. He was in Family Ties. Uh, and he... Uh, evidently, he was the one who came up with the P and Alex P. Keaton. Okay. Uh, that was the name of his character. Cute. Uh, he, he became kind of a heartthrob, but uh, he never fell in with um, sort of like the party crowd. So you never... Mm. Like he... He wasn't ran, part of the Brat Pack. He wasn't... He ran with the Brat Pack, but he mm. wasn't part of it. Yeah. Um, but he was drinking. Mm. Uh, and family, he was filming Family Ties and Teen Wolf and Back to the Future almost simultaneously. And there's this uh, sequence where, uh, like, he sort of just describes his work day. He got up at four in the morning, went to bed at like three the next, you know, three in the morning the next night, slept for an hour, and just did it again for like Ugh. a month. It was when just, you're young, you can burn the candle at both ends like that. Yeah, Ugh. yeah, like oh, you're just watching it. And yeah. something that's really cool is that um, the filmmakers. Excellent editing, because a lot of this is reenactments. They found, like, some actors to sort of reenact, you know, Michael J. Fox getting out of bed. Mm-hmm. But then they cut oh. it in with footage from his movies. Oh, okay. So it looks like he's actually doing it. That's cute. Uh, and they edited it so well, it looks like they actually have footage of a young Michael J. Fox doing wow. all of this. Uh, and uh, 
but yeah, he talks about how he was a, a pretty heavy drinker, how he mm-hmm. met his wife. His, uh, his wife was also an actress who uh, he met on the, the set of Family Ties mm. and still married to this day. They have several nice. kids together. Uh, but they also talked about his, his drinking and how he's mm-hmm. a, kind of a problem. He got a little cocksure, but he got a little cocksure in the way a Canadian gets a little cocksure that he was actually okay. kind of pretty polite and decent. But, you know, he's called on his crap by his wife. It's like, okay, yeah, we're getting married. <laughs> you know, you, you called me on my crap. Thank you. Okay. Talk, so he's very frank about his addiction. And they, we have Michael J. Fox on camera. Yeah. And then, and I didn't know this happened this early in his life. Mm. Uh, he woke up and his pinky was was wiggling a little bit. He had no control oh. over it. Wow. He was young. He was like, he, he was oh, like wow. 30. Because he didn't, he, he didn't tell the world that yeah. he had been uh, diagnosed with uh, he, uh, Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease, until yeah. much later. I didn't realize it was that yeah, early he, on. He, wow. didn't, he didn't let his, his diagnosis be known. And they actually show a lot of clips from his movies about how uh, you can see he's always doing some business with his left hand. He's writing, or he's picking, or he's fiddling with something, or he has it in his pocket, yeah. he's holding something. To, it's yeah. him trying to... He was essentially in denial. He was trying mm-hmm. to deny that his he was sort of... His hand was quivering. Wow. And it turns out this was Parkinson's, and he was really, really young when he had Parkinson's. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the rest of the movie is about how he had to deal with his Parkinson's disease. Wow. Uh, and uh, this is all intercut with footage of him today, mm. Uh, and, you know, he's in his 60s and he's, you know, still has Parkinson's. He's still dealing with it. And he's going through physical therapy. We have to see how much he's struggling. And the movie just ends with, it's a struggle now. Yeah. Like, I, I was a, a big hot shot and, you know, I had this really sort of interesting story and now I'm and now I'm sick with Parkinson's. It's, it's just very frank. It's a very warts and all kind of documentary. And it's not uh, trying to squeeze uh, a really kind of embarrassing pat Hollywood type of inspiration out of it. Yeah. Uh, is he inspiring? Yes. Cause he's working very hard, but he's also very frank about how he's working very hard Yeah, and it's not fun to work very hard. And no. it's, and you know, this is Parkinson's disease. There's no cure yeah. yet. Uh, so it's just going to be, this is, this is my life now and it's really difficult now. And, uh, and I appreciate the frankness of it. Yeah. And I appreciate how he's just sort of telling his story uh, in a very human, very humane kind of a way. And the the filmmakers are not trying to make Michael J. Fox into a myth. Good. It's it's Good. all That's very it. human. It's all very grounding. There's and, there's, uh, there's a lot of hagiographies hey out there. Yeah, right? and and, and yeah. it's that was like my one issue with that Frank Zappa documentary. It was a, a yeah. little bit too hero worshipy. Just about how great they are, and didn't really mm-hmm. engage with everything else. Like he's a really interesting guy, and I think it's yeah. really well put together. I think Alex Winter made a really good movie, but about Frank Zappa. But yeah, it was is a little bit can can get a little bit more grit in this thing. Yeah, I think because they're working with Michael J. Fox, and he's like, I want my story to be told in a certain kind of way, and I think he really wants to be frank about it. Mm. It's like this is me, and he's really kind of lamenting a lot of, of, of his own life. It's, this is a movie where he's kind of confessing. He feels really guilty about a lot of the stuff he did, about how he hid his diagnosis, about his drinking. Uh, I didn't know about his drinking. I didn't know about that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and he, when uh, he's actually saying these sorts of things, as, almost as if this is like his last record. Yeah. Like he, he's only in his 60s, but he feels like, uh, this might be his last chance to really kind of tell the story he wants to say. Yeah. It's like, I have a great mind. I don't want to wait too long to let all these stories sort of go away. 
so that there is a, a, a very sad aspect to this movie, but it's a very moving aspect because that's him. Yeah. Uh, this this is a real human being, and this is what he's going through. Uh, I feel like it's yeah, it kind of strays away from gimmickry, even with all that cool editing stuff. Yeah. It doesn't feel like they're they're trying to get some thrills out of it. That's good. It's mm. and they go through like uh, mm. some parts of his. I wish they had sort of dwelled on certain parts of his filmography. I wish he talked about Midnight Madness some more. Sure, yeah. uh, he was There's in a movie, always more. You know? He was in a, a rock and roll movie called Light of Day in the mid eighties, where he. Yeah, uh, that one was. Uh, he uh, he's like a rock and roller and his sister is also a rock and roller and she wants to live the life of rock and roll and he wants to sort of settle down and his sister is played by Joan Jett. What? Uh, <laughs> How have I ever seen that? And the, it's, I think it's set in America, but you can tell that Michael J. Fox was repping for Canada because they're like sort of bandying back and forth. What are some really great bands? And he kind of walks out the door with Anvil. <laughs> Canada, represent. Um, Trent Reznor is in that movie. That's right. Trent Reznor's in it. A small role, but yeah, Trent Reznor's Trent in Reznor, it. Trent Reznor, Jenna Rollins, Michael McKean. Mm. Holy shit. Okay, well, damn, I gotta see this movie. Paul Schrader made that movie. Yep. That's right. Wow. It a, it's a Paul Schrader movie. Um, Weird. I think people don't talk about it because Joan Jett is a terrible actress. Ah, oh, bummer. <laughs> Look, Joan Jett is Joan Jett. Sure. You hire like, Joan Jett to play no Joan disrespect. Jett, she's good playing yeah. at Joan Jett. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but you know, she, all she's doing is like, yeah, man, I want to do the rock and roll lifestyle. It's like, yes, jo- Joan Jett. You're Joan Jett. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. Yeah, and uh, it yeah. also did something that uh, I watched this w- uh, with my wife Angie, and she, uh, one of her big pet peeves in movies is when somebody goes into a bar and orders beer. Yeah, it's like, hey, what, what do you want? Can I get a beer? N- okay, there's a million different kinds of beer. What, what do you kind want? of beer yeah. do you want? Yeah. Uh, in, in light of day, he goes in and he he orders. Like a brand. I think he orders a Labatt's, another there you ca- go. Canadian beer. Good. Uh, so they don't focus on Light of Day enough. Um, it's mostly like the big hits that you know him for. Here's, here's Teen Wolf, a lot of Back to the Future, a lot of Family Ties. Yeah. Um, but more than anything, uh, he's not trying to say, and here's my career and wasn't it great. He's trying to say, here's me as a person. Yeah, here's what I went through. That, that, I, here's my story. And, and you, you get really involved that, that because sounds, he has an interesting story. That sounds almost uncomfortably personal, which is the best mm. kind of personal really. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, well, I, I was reminded of uh, life itself, the Roger Ebert documentary yeah. where he wanted a lot of that on camera, a lot of sort of his medical oh, struggle. I don't. Yeah. When I go, I want nothing but great shit. <laughs> Just nothing but the good stuff for the like, love you, of God. You, please. You, you have no jaw, Roger. I know. Film it. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, I mean, good. I, I admire that. Mm-hmm. I admire that yeah. bravery. That's 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 very difficult to be that frank. Yeah. So uh, it's so yeah. it's so it's it's a bit of a sad film, but it's yeah, it's really uh, really intense and really moving. Um, yeah, and I really liked it. All right. Well, I do not have a good segue from that, but I guess we'll go with the more uh, serious of the two films that I have left to review. Uh, this one is a new film from Nicole Holoff Center. Never know if I'm pronouncing oh, right. Yeah. It's a great I, filmmaker. I think it's Holofsener, yeah. Yeah, a uh, great filmmaker. Uh, I, they, I haven't seen everything they've ever done. I really like their film, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Yeah. Uh, which is starred Melissa McCarthy as uh, a woman who starts to make ends true, meet. True story, by, yeah. Yeah, it's based on true story of a woman who tried to make ends meet like by, forging, uh, for, yeah. by forging old correspondence and selling it on the collector's market mm. because no one would actually buy her books. Yeah. Um, Great movie. Great movie. I highly, highly recommend um, a movie she did in 2001 called Lovely and Amazing. Mm. Um, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, with uh, uh, Catherine Keener, uh, Brenda Blethyn, and Emily Mortimer. Yeah. And sort of like their 
a, a lot of like their issues with their bodies and body image mm. and uh and it just have a lot of really frank conversations about those things that's a really great movie yeah she's also directed a lot of tv uh the movie that feels she, like she also uh was one of the three screenwriters on the last duel oh yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. uh the movie that she made that feels very much of a piece with the film you hurt my feelings is uh a film she made with uh, james gandolfini and Julie Louis uh, and Dreyfus, and Julie yeah. Dreyfus, who's also in "You Hurt My Feelings," called "Enough Said," and was one of James Gandolfini's last movies. Uh, he's wonderful in it. Uh, they're just older people who are starting in a relationship, uh, and she really is deeply fond of him. But then she starts befriending his ex, and he doesn't know that. And she starts hearing all of these just really bad shit about not not evil, not terrible, but just the embarrassing stuff. Mm. Like the not the not fun stuff, the stuff you don't talk about early on in a relationship, and it starts making her like sort of mentally pull away from him at a time when she wants to be mentally pulling closer to him, and it's very frank about that, and it's it's a bit more of a bummer than I wish it was. <laughs> like I just Aww. feel so bad for James Gandolfini in that movie because he's just so genuine and cool, and he's not treated well. Mm. by people in that film and yeah i wish i liked that movie more than i did but everyone's really good in it and it's what very well made uh you hurt my feelings also stars julia louis dreyfus uh and an actor named tobias menzies uh as her husband they have been married for a while they have a son who is now an adult and uh, working in a weed store uh they are pretty affluent new yorkers Okay. He is a therapist and she is a writer. She also teaches. Uh, and the plot of the movie is this. They've been married for a very long time. It seems like they got everything figured out. They're very close. And then in a very sitcom kind of way in terms of just how the plot gets going, she overhears him talking to a mutual friend about how he doesn't like her new book as much as her last book. Ah. But. Drama. He has only told her good things about this book. Uh-huh. And this has sent her into sort of a sense of shock that this person who she thought they they were being completely honest with each other about everything is not only being dishonest with her about something that's really important to her, her work mm-hmm. as an artist, uh, but yeah, like it's just, can, can I trust you? Have you been lying? What else have you been lying to me about? What else have I... Do you, do you really care about anything that I care about? Or are you just trying to spare my feelings? And that's kind of the whole movie. Is just... A long-term relationship that is split open by uh, circumstance. Okay. And the little things that we all do in some relationship. Even non-romantic relationships. Where we say or do something... Not out of any sense of, or any lack of love, uh-huh. but just because it's what you want to hear right now. Yeah. And you don't mean anything negative by it, but maybe it accumulates into a general of sense of dishonesty over time. That's the whole movie. <laughs> and, uh... It, that's, that's, a, that's like a one-act play. It, it really, uh... it really could be a one-act play, and it's, and it's a little difficult... It's a little difficult to get super invested in this movie sometimes because ultimately, what are what is this movie about? It is about two rich people and one of them likes the other one's book a little less than they like their last book. 
Like it's 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 pretty bougie. It reminded me very much of this wave of independent movies we were getting in like the eighties and the nineties, the Whit Stillmans and the and the Way Allens, mm-hmm. uh, where basically just like the lives and the the uh, pursuits of the intelligentsia in New York City uh-huh. were the center of the universe. <laughs> and when it's written well, it can be that. And we can laugh at the foibles, and we can laugh at how out of touch they are, but we can also acknowledge that there is a nugget of truth in this. And when You Hurt My Feelings works, and it works most of the time, actually. It's very Hmm. slight, but it works. Uh, It plays like a therapy session, where here are these two characters, they've not been communicating as well as they thought they had, and they're going to have to have it out, and it's going to be awkward. And he is a therapist. He actually does couples therapy, um... Ben, um, Desert David Cross, not Ben Cross, Ben Cross is a different actor. Yeah. David Cross and Amber Tamblin were together in real life. Uh, they play a couple that he's been, uh, had, he's been having a couple's therapy for many, many years, and they hate each other. Uh. And he has done no good for them whatsoever. Oh, jeez. <laughs> There's one amazing bit in the movie. It's, it's later in the movie, but it's such a good bit. I'm going to tell you about it. Um, where the one thing they agree on is you've done nothing to help us, and we want our money back. Mm. All of it now. <laughs> and it's like thousands upon thousands of dollars, and they think, "Well, we, we we paid for a service and we didn't get it." And it's sort of like, "Well, yeah, but that's not how therapy works." That part's funny. Um, it's a film about people who are affluent enough that this is all they have to care about, and that's something that is, yeah, I can see it definitely being a turnoff. But if you can watch the movie and you can mm. appreciate that, even in this world this conversation that we're having about honesty in relationships and about honesty, not in the really big stuff, but in the little stuff and how when you're with someone long enough, that matters Mm. when it's dealing with that, it's, it's really, really good. And I think there aren't enough movies. I said this a lot. There are so many movies out there that really focus on the beginning of romance. Yeah. How we meet, how we date, how we end up getting married. And there aren't enough movies about when you've been married for 20 years and drama picks up. And it isn't like super duper melodramatic, like an Adrian Lyne movie where I slept with someone and then I killed them. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, no, no. Just just actually the drama of long-term relationships right. really gets the short shrift in cinema. I think sitcoms have a pretty good hold on that because mm-hmm. they're a, they tend to be about the foibles of everyday life over a long term. So you can get more of that in various sitcoms about long-term relationships, even though those tend to emphasize conflict so much. You don't always think people should be together Um, here. I think there's a lot of really good nuanced performances and I think there's an interesting nuanced conversation to be had about it, but it's also a little distancing at times just because well, really this is what we're complaining about. Nicole Holofsener also did a film uh, called friends with money. Yeah. uh, Which also did that thing where it talks mm. about um well, that one's more about class though it's about wealthy people yeah i didn't are, see uh, that one yeah like i said i haven't seen all of, all of their films so. yeah, and, and how their uh their relationships are actually affected by their financial status yeah yeah and how they're you know resented by their other rich friends and that's a valid thing that's an mm. actual issue that arises in interpersonal mm. relationships when there is a significant class divide, yeah. and you realize that you're not living the same life as someone else mm. around you, even though you share so much. And so I like that there are movies that can do this, that can have these conversations, that can feel slight, that can feel like those indie movies of the 90s. Um, 
But this one really might not be for everybody. So if that sounds like eye-rolling to you, you're probably not going to get super into it. If, on the other hand, you really want to see a movie about people in long-term relationships dealing with long-term relationship problems and dealing with it in a thoughtful, meaningful way, mm. this is quite good. Yeah. But I think it's I think it's definitely not a movie. It's not a four-quadrant film. <laughs> it's not trying to hit the teenagers really hard. This is a movie, right, I think, right, for, right. for older adults who have something to bring to this and they're going to go, oh, I recognize that. And the last movie we're going to be talking about uh, is the Nazi killing movie. which is Becky. Yeah, Becky's back. I liked Becky. Becky was fun. Uh, Becky came out in 2020 uh, and uh, it's it was a story about, uh, it started... Um, Kevin James was a Nazi. Kevin James played a neo-Nazi and Lulu Wilson, mm. who was starting a lot of horror movies, uh, is a uh, is a young actor who uh, basically she's she was only like thirteen when she made Becky. It's, she was pretty young when she yeah. made Becky, and uh, she's still I think only like seventeen or eighteen now. Mm. Um, she plays a, like a troublemaking kid, like a kid who's maybe destined for bad things. Maybe she's mm. a really bad kid. Like maybe she's might be oh, hurt by her people. She, like yeah. it's that's the question. We don't know how bad she is. We know that she's not happy about her father being in a new relationship, even though everything seems actually copacetic, but she's acting out in a very negative way. Um, and then they go to a cabin to sort of work out their family issues when they are attacked by neo-Nazis led by Kevin James. Yes, the zookeeper. Yes, Paul Blart. And you know what? He's I, I, really good in it. You know what? I, I have nothing against Kevin James. I got nothing against Kevin James. Other than, you know, he's got a shitty agent. Like, yeah. that's, that's kind of it. And I'll say this. Paul Blart won. The first Paul Blart mm. is a pretty good movie. Is it great? <laughs> no. But it does everything it needs to do. It's got likable characters. The plot works. It's familiar, but it is not bad. Paul Blart 2 stinks out loud. That is a terrible motion picture. But I will I will go to bat for Paul Blart. That's the kind of critic I am. In 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 Becky, he's evil and he is trying to get at basically a MacGuffin. She's got like a key from her mother. It's one of the last heirlooms her mother left before her mother died. Okay. And he's after this key. And he'll do anything to get it. And he kills people. And sure her dad dies in that movie. I say that now because you'll need to know it in the sequel. Um and Becky, well, she puts on her, her, you know, her furry animal hat and she grabs her colored pencils and she stabs people to death with them. And she just goes on this neo-Nazi killing spree, just killing all of these neo-Nazis who are threatening and attacking her family. And at the end of the movie, she's basically on the run. It's now several years later in The Wrath of Becky and she has still been on the run. She keeps getting caught and being brought into a foster family. She immediately escapes mm. and goes out on the run. She is practicing to uh, become more violent than ever, throwing knives, playing, laying out traps in the woods. And at the beginning of the movie, she's found some sense of normalcy uh, with an older woman who has uh, taken her in. Okay. Uh, doesn't question her past too much. They're pretty cool. Uh, she works at a diner. She hates everyone there. And she fantasizes about murdering them. And then one day, into the diner, walk not proud boys, but noble men. <laughs> but it's the proud boys. But it's the proud boys. All right. Bunch of men's rights activists, assholes. Uh, no, they're they're proud, racist and proud, they're. Proud boys are going to prison, by the way. Oh, yes, yeah. they are. 
they're assholes, they treat her like shit, they're mean to her, and then uh, when she intentionally spills hot coffee on one of their dicks, uh, they decide they're going to follow her back to her house, uh, just which of, they do, yeah. they attack, the old woman gets killed, and then they make an even bigger mistake, they steal Becky's dog. Oh, uh, it's John Wick. So it's a bit John Wick, but it's it's Becky, so it's different. Uh she tracks them down to their to their Proud Boys hideout, uh, where they are planning, like, the next day to hold an insurrection and, like, kill the governor of the state. Right. So they've got, like, so a whole really bunch of weaponry and explosives. Yeah, so they got a whole bunch of little, weaponry little, uh... and explosives and things. Uh, instead of being led by uh, famous comic actor Kevin James, uh, these uh, uh, bigots are being led by famous comic actor Sean William Scott. All right. Who's good? He's genuinely intimidating and really good. I really like this whole thing where we're going to take comic actors who you are not used to being intimidated by and make them intimidating as fuck. That's a really fun bet. So whereas the first film was Becky fighting off a home invasion from uh, uh, white supremacists, uh, and this new one, She's home invading the white supremacists, and she's basically stalking them. <laughs> she's, like, shooting them with crossbows and shit, yeah. and she's laying out traps and, like, blowing them up, and, like, it's fucking great. It's absolutely just 100%. Uh, it's it's irresponsible, uh-huh. because it's she's she's not really the kind of hero you... We, she's not the hero we want but she's probably the hero we need in this situation. Okay, kind of so thing. she's like a she's a, a violent vigilante. Yeah. yeah, but she's killing horrible people. She's exclusively it just she cannot stop running into neo Nazis, white supremacists, bigots, whatever you want to call them, and they keep running afoul of her, and she keeps murdering the shit out of them, and they're bad people. They're exclusively bad people. They're doing terrible things, and the karmically, this is one of those movies. Like again. You kill John Wick's dog, he has permission to kill you and everyone you've ever met. Yes. It's like Bugs Bunny. If you inconvenience Bug Bunny, he has position. He has the right to kill you and everyone you've ever met. We call this Groucho or Harpo Marx Syndrome. Exactly. Becky is given carte blanche to kill all of these assholes. And kill all these assholes she will. Lulu Wilson is great. She knows when the character is funny. She knows when the character is genuinely creepy. She knows, like, the... She's not actually like a good person, but she's weaponized in the right direction, uh-huh. so we're fine with it. She gets that balance really, really well. Yeah, it's it, there's the version of this movie that could have led to like a bigger climax, like that could have been like more epic, and it, they clearly didn't have the budget to even seriously consider that. So it stays kind of on the smaller scale in terms of scope. Mm. But the ending of the movie, and I will just say this much. Suggests that if we get a Becky 3, we're going to have some awesome shit ahead of us. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. It, 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 it puts down a promise that if we have a Becky 3, it's going to go into f- just full fucking overload. And I really liked Becky a lot. I thought it was a lot of fun. Wrath of Becky, even better. It's nice. different filmmakers. They have a much more sure direction, I feel. They have a better, even better sense of the balancing of the tone. Uh, and it is intensely satisfying, really gory. It's great. So, if you liked Becky, you gotta see Wrath of Becky. If you didn't see Becky, you should see Becky. Becky's, you, good. Becky's good. If you can't see Becky, you can see watch Wrath of Becky and you'll be fine. I think it's a little stronger when you see everything Becky has 
started from and then gone through it to get here. Uh-huh. I think you'll probably be a little bit more invested in it if you see the original Becky. But even if you skip that and just watch The Wrath of Becky, you're going to have a good time. Yeah. It's just that. Kind of, and I love that there's this fucking renegade, low-budget, action-thriller franchise that is explicitly taking aim at the politics of the day. It feels very 1970s in that regard. And love it's it. just really satisfying. Love it. Yeah. yeah, it's really great. I like Brad Rath and Becky a lot. So, on that note, it is time to do the critically acclaimed review roundup. We review movies on a scale of C- to C+. The highest a movie can get, the best rating we can give a movie is a C+, that is above average. That means we genuinely recommend the movie. Maybe we think it's brilliant, but we genuinely recommend it. Mm-hmm. Then there's a C. A C is just average. Mixed bag, some good, some bad, more for one audience than another. And then a C- minus is below average. We do not recommend those movies. And we might even think they're outright terrible. On that note, The Wrath of Becky, C+. Alright. Intensely satisfying, mm. low-budget thriller, uh, good sense of humor, great gore, uh, definitely knows what to aim at and does so in an entertaining way. And that's hard to do, I think, right now with certain topics. So mm. kudos to everyone involved. It is a real treat. Backheads for life. Uh, (laughs) Let's see. uh, You hurt my feelings. Um, I'm a little torn on it. I'm going to give it a very high C. Okay. I'm going to give it a very high C. I think when it's speaking intelligently about its problems, it's really excellent. But it also probably would have been stronger as a one-act play. Yeah. It doesn't really always feel like it really justifies uh, the amount of time it gives itself. But it is it is intelligent when it is good, and if that sounds like something you want to see, I think you will get a lot out of it. Right. Uh, still, a Michael J. Fox movie. Uh, that's a C plus. Okay. Yeah, like I said, it's it's very touching, it's very moving, it's very confessional. Mm. Uh, it's yeah, um, a, a wonderful place to go for. Uh, a, an actor who you might sort of dismiss as a mere movie star. I know that sounds a little odd, mm-hmm. but he is a human being and we get to know him as a human being. And that's actually, you know, eye opening and great. Awesome. Uh, let's see. Influencer, a new thriller on mm-hmm. shutter. Uh, this is a really remarkably clever and exciting and well-crafted thriller on every level. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's again, it's not like, Parasite levels of like absolute ingeniousness, uh-huh. but I was very pleasantly surprised at just how smartly crafted this was from beginning to end, and how it never went exactly where I thought it was going to go, and that is a rare treat nowadays. Mm. So, see that movie on Shutter. I think you'll really get a lot out of it. Uh, what's the other Shutter movie? Oh, uh, it's called Where Sarah the Bone Woman. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, I really like this one. I like sort of its queer themes. I liked uh, a, a lot of. The spooky imagery in it, uh, not a great ending, you know, so I guess it'll be a, a high C. Mm. Um, if it had a better ending, it would have been a C plus, though. Yeah. Uh, about my father, again, yeah. as a movie, it's a C minus. As a Father's Day card, it's a C plus. Hmm. I'm giving it a C. All right. It's very generic comedy filmmaking in a lot of regards. Dante, put that down. <laughs> Dante, 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 Dante. Okay. Thank you. Cat was into some business. Uh, it's a very generic comedy storyline about my father, but there's some actual genuine sincerity and affection in it that uh, I think it's gonna it's gonna be effective enough for some people mm. to appreciate. And I, I know it made me smile, even though it didn't make me laugh. Yeah. Okay. 
Sounds good. All right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, white men can't jump. Uh, that's a C minus. Yeah. It, it is just bland, nothing movie. They took something that actually had some thought and got rid of the thought. Yeah. Uh, they they had something they could have said and they said nothing. Uh, it's just bland sport movie tropes that, and even those aren't played interestingly. It's exactly what you're afraid Disney is going to do to a movie. Yeah. Which yeah. is weird because again, it's R rated for language, but they kept the language, but none of the bite. Yeah. None of the the it's just using the, the wit. Foul it's language. just yeah. it, they're just foul for the sake of being foul. You could have cut out all the language, had the exact same movie, and it would be PG, and it would just be bland and just as ineffectual. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Fast X, big old C plus. Oh, C plus, definitely. Big uh, stupid wonderful it's, movie. It's, it's just as idiotic as you want it to be. It's yeah. really really thrilling. Jason Momoa is a wonderful villain. Yeah. Uh, it's. Even when it has plot holes and just complete idiocy, you know that's part of why we're here. Mm-hmm. Uh, just yeah, just pure drive-in kind of entertainment. Yeah. And, and it's not like I'm I forgive everything the Fast and Furious movies do. Again, there's mm-hmm. a couple of movies which are which are also big and stupid, mm-hmm. but I don't think capture it right. I don't think get the tone right, or I think they uh, call attention to the wrong things, or they just don't get away with it. Yeah. This one gets away with it. It's big, brassy, and ridiculous, and they they nailed it. I think from start to finish, uh, and then lastly, the Little Mermaid. I mean, I'm I'm gonna give it a C minus, mm. but it's not an angry C minus. Yeah, it's not a horrendous movie. It's just uh, so weak when compared to the original, and you can only compare it to the original. Yeah, uh, it, it doesn't do anything sort of creative or new or fun with the material. Mm. It doesn't address any kind of new themes with the material. It's trying to expand on things in ways that don't make it more interesting. Mm. Um, the visuals are fine. Uh, Halle Bailey is an excellent singer. Mm. It might be worth seeing just to listen to her sing, but you can also get that from the soundtrack record. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's just dull. It's just a dull yeah. film. I, I'm going to be, I'm kinder to it. I'm going to give it a C. And yeah. I think I'm going to give it a C because I think... Um, you know, they change some things that don't work. There's things that really do work. Some of the casting is really excellent. Again, Holly Bailey, excellent. Really wonderful find. I think if this was the first version of The Little Mermaid you saw, uh-huh. you would still, you would like it. Yeah. If you don't have the originals to compare it to, I think this gets enough of it right that I can't help but give it a C. Okay. But it, it compared to the original Little Mermaid, is definitely a C-. minus. Right. But just on its own, it's a C. There are things about it that work really, really well. And the things about it that don't work are occasionally goofy and laughable, but mostly are just kind of generic and okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is Critically Acclaimed for this week. A big, giant, epic episode for you. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode... Or beyond, you can always email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Send us a physical letter to the P.O. Box uh, 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yep, we want to give a special thank you to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash criticallyacclaimednetwork. In addition to getting all of our new shows ad-free, in addition to getting various uh, exclusive podcasts about every single episode of Star Trek or every film ever nominated for Best Picture, you also get episodes of our new podcast, Thank Godzilla, It's Friday, where Whitney and I are reviewing every single film in the Godzilla series in order on Fridays. 
we release those episodes one week early on our Patreon page. So if you like what you're listening to, you can get them one week early over there. Yeah. Um, and uh, seriously, thank you, everyone. Without you, we couldn't be doing what we're doing. We're incredibly grateful to you. It means the world to us. Uh, we're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And I guess that's about that. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And never forget, everyone is a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?